Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another installment of the Bataround here on a beautiful March 13th, Saturday morning. We are coming to you live from the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio. The Bataround is brought to you by Chesapeake Employers Insurance, your workers' compensation insurance specialist. I am your host, Paul Valley, and joined with me is my incomparable, my extraordinarily talented, my very young co-host, Zachary Goodman. Zach, how are you today, my man? I'm great, Paul. How are you? I'm doing really well. This is one of my favorite days of the year. Really? Uh, because this is the last day that it gets dark early. The yeah. last day. Okay. I, I I love spring forward. I love it. it to, to me, it's like, I know we're in meteorological spring, and I said that so many times on March 1st that the word lost all meaning, but I love when we spring forward. Everybody's like, oh, but we lose an hour of sleep. Yeah, but we gain an hour of daylight. We, like, it's going to be dark. It's I'm gonna, all for it. Yeah. The sun's going to be out till like 7.30 tomorrow. That's going to be awesome. I love that. And to me, that's like the first official day of spring. And speaking of the first of day, official day of spring, a lot of people feel like the first day of spring is opening day. And we just got word that Camden Yards is going to be hosting fans at 25% capacity on opening day, which will be Thursday, April 8th, of course. That's not the Orioles' first game of the year. They do have a series against Boston and a series against the Yankees in Boston and New York before they open up at home against the Red Sox on April 8th. Now, Zach, I haven't missed... an, an open On opening day, when fans are allowed to be in the stands, I haven't missed since 2007. However, this year, because there's only 11,000 fans, the Orioles are only allowing... Um, fans with 29-game and 81-game season plans to purchase opening day tickets, much to my chagrin. I I don't have the time and I don't have the money for a 29- or an 81-game plan. So I'm SOL. That, that is a lot of games to commit to go to. That, that's a lot of games. I have a hard time committing. Like, Look, I go to probably 10, 15 games, here, yeah. games a year, um, but I have a hard time making a commitment yeah. in March – to the games I want to go to in May, June, July, August, September. Like I, that, that's that's difficult for me because you don't know what life's going to throw at you over the upcoming months. Uh, 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 clearly, that was never more evident than this time last year. So, for me, it's I get it. I understand the people that are the diehards, and, I, and I, I'm a diehard, right? I, this has been what I love. The Orioles were my very first love. Uh, but for the diehards that spend their hard-earned money on those partial and full-season plans. Yeah, they deserve first crack at opening day. But there's a little bit of, um, I don't want to say animosity because I'm not angry about it, but there's a, there's a little bit of ire on my part that I don't have the option to buy opening day tickets unless I'm probably going to have to go to StubHub and right. I'm probably going to have to pay two to three, time, pay two to three times the amount um, for the tickets for opening day. I'm just glad there's fans that are going to be there. I, just, I would really like to be one of them. Yeah, I mean, people are obviously going to resell them for... Probably two to three more times than what they bought them for. I mean that that's just smart math right there. Um, you know, tickets are usually you know two hundred fifty dollars around that for opening day. Maybe one hundred and fifty if you no, can find good ones. No. That's that's what I've seen them for in the past. I've I've never paid more than a hundred bucks. Really? Uh, wow. That's actually to, pretty cheap. Well, well hundred to one hundred and thirty. Were, were you in like the nosebleeds though, all the way up? 
No, man, I've never had bad really? seats for opening day. I, I, I'm usually the worst seats I had were back when Mark Trumbull hit the walk off in two, 2017. Yep. Um, I was at that game too. When I, I was with my dad and we were down the left field line in the upper deck, but we were in the first row. So they have the lower tier of yep. the upper deck, and then they have the like, and then you have your walking area, and then we were in the first row at the walking area, just above the walking area, and that's those are the worst seats I've had for opening day in quite some time, um, I think ever really, and they were still really good seats, so. Continue. Yeah, now people are going to sell them for a lot of money, though. I think, especially with only twenty five percent capacity, especially the first series against Boston, it's probably going to be kind of tough to get tickets for a decent price. I mean, I, I think you could probably see things up near four hundred dollars just because there's so little tickets right now out there. And That's insane. I know, but and the thing is, is people want to go. I mean, these these season ticket holders want to go that's you know they, they own these plans for a reason there's not going to be that many people reselling and then when they do it's going to drive the prices up really high because of, of such high demand so i don't know it's 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 great for them i mean it's, it's if you're a season ticket holder it's awesome you get to go to opening day but for everyone else who's not like you and me it's going to be a little tougher to get tickets at all so you know hopefully the prices aren't too astronomically high uh, i'm going to do my damnedest to be there i'm going to do my damnedest to be there um whether or not i can make that happen is another story, but story for another day. Let's move on to other things. Nick Markakis, he was a longtime Oriole, and uh, he was a longtime Oriole, and then he went to the Braves, which is back in his hometown, where, or at least he lived in Georgia since he was 10 before he got, it, got to the majors. Um, he retires yesterday after 15 years, 2,388 hits, 189 career home runs, 288 career batting average, a 357 on base percentage. Nick Markakis was, was as steady as they come, and he was a gold glove right fielder. One-time All-Star, you can make the argument, he probably should have been about five-time All-Star uh, at, at least. I, I mean, in 2008, the guy led the American League in war, and he didn't make the yep. All-Star team. Um, Nick Markakis was a very good and, and very underrated player how do you feel about his retirement after 15 seasons? Yeah, I mean, he's he's going to go down as, you know, a great Oriole and, of course, a, a Brave that, you know, really made a lot of impact for them over the past couple of years in their playoff runs. So, you know, he's he's a great player. Like you said, as steady as, as, steady as anyone, really. I mean, he, he's just a great contact hitter. Maybe never developed the power that people thought he might have, but he still had a couple 20-plus home run seasons. And, you know, a, a guy that just really was was a great guy in the game too always pretty quiet but no you know really stayed out of trouble on and off the field just was a really steady presence in every lineup he was ever in and I, I think managers loved managing him and you know he's just he's a really 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 legendary Oriole to me even though he probably won't be in the Hall of Famers number won't be retired he, he's just a legendary Oriole to me still he would he would uh, be he's one of my all-time favorites same here yeah he, he, he he's one of my all-time favorites and and before the show you and I were talking about um should the Orioles retire his number? And the answer is probably no. I mean, I, I think most people would say no. I, I am I am more of a fan of Nick Markakis uh, for some reason. I guess because he and I are about the same age, and and like he came up in 2006, and I remember his first game. I remember how highly talented he was. And I'm an Adam Jones fan. I, I love Adam Jones, but I was more of a Nick Markakis fan than I was an Adam Jones fan. I just I just liked the way Nick played the game and I, I thought that he had a better approach at the plate. Um 
And, and so for me, even though I'm a bigger fan of Nick Markakis, I know that Adam had a bigger impact on the franchise. And I'm iffy about Adam Jones' number being retired. I think ultimately it should and, and may may well be retired. Nick Markakis, he just nine years just didn't do enough. If he had, if he had done what he did in 2007 and 2008 for his entire right. career with the Orioles. And we're talking 20-plus home runs, 100-plus RBIs, hitting over 300, two, close to 200 hits every year. The guy played in over 150 games 11 times in a 15-year career. And this is with the fact that he had neck fusion surgery, right? And he so out of 15 years, 11 times he played over 150 games. Uh, that's that is durability. You know, that's somebody that you can count on, and he plays good gold glove defense, and he can hit about 300, close to 200 hits. But if he had done what he did in 07 and 08 for the the majority of his Orioles career, you can make the case, because he would go down as one of the greatest Orioles players of all time that's not in the Hall of Fame. And I think he already does. I think he's a top yeah, 10 player. For sure, for sure. Really, I mean, there, there's not many guys after after the top five, right? Because your, your top five are Cal, Eddie, uh, Brooks, Frank, and Jim Palmer, in no right. particular order. And then after that, there's Boog Powell and and, and Quayar, Paul and Paul Blair, Quayar, um, Flanagan, Flanagan. Well, I I wouldn't put Flanagan up there. Flanagan you put him Flan- in the top fifteen, maybe. Maybe, but I I put I put Nick Markakis in that second, maybe third tier. So he's definitely a, at least a top fifteen player for me in Orioles history. But does that is that enough to retire his number? Yeah, probably not. When you factor into the fact that. Only Hall of Famers have the numbers retired, and the Orioles also have Mike Messina, who's in the Hall of Fame, but not as an Oriole, not as any player, uh, uh, not affiliated with any team, and Harold Baines, who spent a, a good chunk of his career here, but their numbers aren't retired. I love Nick Markakis, love what he did. It's not, you can't retire his number. Yeah, I agree with you. And there's a couple guys that have worn 21. Austin Hayes is wearing 21 now, so it's not like, you know, they're saving that number for someone else. Um, and Adam Jones, you know, number 10, of course, they nobody's worn that number after Adam Jones left, so it's a pretty good indication the Orioles will probably retire it, even though he's not a Hall of Famer, at least that we know of now. Um, but, you know, two, two great Orioles, and I would definitely put Adam Jones's number to be retired. You know, Nick Marquez probably not, but still a legendary Oriole in my eyes for sure. Yeah, and Adam Jones isn't a Hall of Famer. No, definitely he, not. He he's not a Hall of Famer. But I, I would not. He, maybe if he played for like five more years. Yeah, but it. but he would have had he would have need to play five more years with a production of 2012, right. 2013 right. to to get to that level. And his his production really started to decline starting in 2018, especially defensively. Yeah, especially defensively. Yeah. Um. Another big name, another first-round pick, Nick Markakis, seventh overall pick by the Orioles. Uh, also, a lot of people don't know this, Nick Markakis was also considered a first-round talent as a pitcher. Yep. And most teams viewed him as a pitcher. The Orioles selected him as an outfielder. Another first-round pitcher um, who's had his share of troubles is Hunter Harvey. Uh, had a lot of arm in- issues since being drafted in the first round in 2013. Um, and he strained his oblique yesterday. through one pitch uh, against Mickey Moniak and winced trainers came out um he ke- like bent over almost not keeled over cause he didn't hit the ground or anything like that but he bent over in pain wincing trainers came out he leaves the field after one pitch all we see on social media is hunter harvey throws one pitch and leaves in pain i'm writing this guy's epitaph uh, like I- i'm right. sitting there and i'm like Oh my God, his career is over. That's this is another arm injury, and I, and I get it. He's twenty six, twenty seven years old. He's still young, but how many arm injuries can you have? Yep. yep. I, I, we find out it's an oblique strain. This is about a six to eight week injury, unless you're Richard Blyer, 
Richard Blyer had one of the worst oblique strains maybe in history. Uh, it, it, t- it took him six months to recover from that injury, and he still wasn't recovered until maybe the last month of the next season when he started finally pitching like Richard Blyer. But with Hunter Harvey, this is about as good as we could we could have expected. He's going to miss probably six to eight weeks. I, I'm, I'm leaning more towards the, the two-month side of yeah. things. But this isn't... This isn't even season ending, and we're looking at when we first heard the news. This could be season, possibly even career ending, if it's his arm again. Yeah, it's it's another injury for Hunter Harvey, and it's been a long road for him. He just really hasn't been able to even find success in the majors because he hasn't been healthy enough to find success in the majors. I mean, this is a guy who has good stuff. That fastball can hit ninety nine, touch a hundred. You know, he's got really good stuff. It's just a problem of staying healthy at this point for him. The Orioles are fully committed to putting him in their bullpen if he can actually stay healthy. But he's just showing time and time again that he just can't stay on the field. And it's really unfortunate because he was such a highly touted prospect at one point when he was drafted. And it just hasn't worked out for him. It's just every little time, you know, he comes back and tries to be that guy for the Orioles. Maybe, you know, gets into that closing role or close to it, the setup role. He gets injured again. You know, injured, missed most of 2020. You know, probably going to miss a good chunk of 2021. You know, these things, it, it looks like a six to eight week thing now. It could get even worse. It could be even better. We don't, we don't know. These so, things tend to linger. Right. O- yeah, oblique injuries tend do. to linger. Right. And, and so, you know, I, I don't have full confidence he's going to be back by even June. I just, we don't know at this point. Uh, but it does open up a spot for another guy in the bullpen. I'd love to see Mickey Giannis get a shot. Mickey Janis, I think it is. Um, you know, a knuckleballer. He's been around for a long time in the minor leagues, but never made his major league debut. He really is pitching well in spring training. Um, he was on that viral video the Orioles posted the other day that his knuckleball had like zero rotation on it at yeah. all. Um, I'd love to see him get a shot. You know, why not a guy like him or a guy like Bruce Zimmerman, a guy who can, you know, ha- has something to prove, I guess. And, and um, you know, at the very least, this opens up spot for someone else well I think that that Bruce Zimmerman the way he's performed and you, we're gonna I'm not gonna steal your thunder yep. we're gonna talk about this in your sounding off segment the, the way he's performed I think he's got an inside track to having a role in the team regardless yep, of, if, of if Hunter Harvey um got injured however I think it maybe opens a door for a rule five guy like could, yeah. Max Soroller yep. or Tyler Wells and Tyler Wells has pitched pretty well um in 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 his outings uh Max Soroller not not so much speaking of rule fives uh, Gary, I'm sorry, Gary. Gray Fenter was returned to the Orioles from the Cubs. He's never pitched above single A, um, so it was a long shot the Cubs would keep him on their roster anyway. But he got into one game, had one scoreless inning with the Cubs this spring. They've returned him to the Orioles. He's been assigned to uh, Major League Spring Training as a reserve, so he's going to report to Twin Lakes Park. Um, but good to have him back in the system. That's that's a solid yep. arm that people are hopeful for. The Orioles took a gamble by leaving him unprotected. It worked out for them. Uh, now we just got to hope that Zach Pop has the same uh, has the same thing happen for him. Uh, some people think that he's never coming back from the Marlins, and I, and I that wouldn't surprise me. But it also wouldn't surprise me if he did, because this is still a young guy who's coming off an injury, who hasn't pitched much in the last couple of years. He's never really been above Double A, right? Right. So this is. Zach Pop is the guy I really want back. It just depends. And if the Marlins, the Marlins made the playoffs last year. They consider themselves a playoff-worthy team again this year. Can you really afford to keep a guy who's coming off an injury who's never pitched above double A? Yeah, 162 games to keep a guy on your roster who is probably not going to pitch at a very high level. He might pitch at a high level. I hope you know. I hope for him he does. But he's probably not going to be great. You know, for them, that's why Rule Five is so hard. You've got to keep the guy on the roster for the whole year, or you send him back. You, you, there's no DFAing. There's no sending down. He's 
there, he's stuck there. And that's just hard for any MLB team to swallow. The Orioles have actually done it a couple times. You know, Joey Rickard, Ryan Flaherty, Anthony Santander sat on the, the IL for most of the year, but they've done it, you know, TJ quite Mc, a few times. TJ McFarland. Yeah, TJ mm-hmm. McFarland. And you know, it, it's it's a good process if if you can actually make it work. You know, it's especially if a guy gets injured, you can just stash him on the injured list for a while. That's even better, um, and, and let him develop a little bit more, have a rehab assignment. That's what the Orioles did with Santander. Um, but I, I do think Pop comes back. It's just so hard to so hard to keep a guy on that roster for so long. Well, and then it's also one of those things where they can go the route that they did with Pedro Araujo. Araujo. Um, you can trade for him, right? Where. where you give him back, but then you trade for him and you yeah. keep him in your system. Although I haven't heard much of him, but we haven't heard much from a lot of these fringe players uh, because of the canceled 2020 minor league season. So now another guy um, who the Orioles are hinging a lot of their hopes on this year is John Means. And he went out yesterday and he was the first Orioles starter to go four innings. Uh, four innings, one earned run on two hits, one walk, and four strikeouts. These were the first strikeouts of his spring season uh and this is his third start so uh, nice to see him get on the board with four strikeouts in four innings pitched very effectively Orioles starters have left a lot to be desired this spring 771 ERA from the starting unit uh in great league action it's about that time where we need to start seeing results and John means for the first of that you think that this is kind of has a domino effect when you start seeing more effective outings from these starters yeah I hope so I mean I hope that John means you know creates a, a good effect in the locker room and, and these guys start pitching better you know King Felix has had two you know I would say considerably rough starts Keegan Aiken has not had a very good starts at all uh, Dean Kramer had one rough start but then he really bounced back in that next start pitched very well um, and Wade LeBlanc had pitched well in the one start he had but overall it's been kind of rough the Orioles have been walking a lot of guys. Command hasn't been there, especially for Felix Hernandez and and uh, and, and Keegan Aiken as well. So, you know, I, I'd like to see some of these guys start ramping it up. You know, you can make excuses in the first couple days of spring training because, you know, obviously these guys are still warming up. The spring training is, is training for a reason. These guys are getting back to where they were coming out of the 2020 season at the end of it, and it, they're ramping back up. And now, you know, it's midway through March. We should start to see results and, and great outing from John Means. Glad to see it. Well, and so, so, something that's certainly hurting the pitchers is the defense. Defense has been borderline terrible. Atrocious. Yeah. It, it, it's been really bad. You're seeing Ryan Mountcastle drop a ball, a routine fly ball in left field. You're seeing yeah. errors from any, pretty much anybody that's played shortstop this spring has made an error for yeah. the Orioles, a, a stupid or bad error. Uh, you've seen um, some bad throws from like Gunnar Henderson, but that's a rookie who's like the, the first ground ball that he fields in his first spring camp, and he throws it away. Like uh, The nerves are there. The, the nerves. Sure. I, I totally understand that. To that point, to that point, to that point, Orioles pitchers need to find a way to minimize or work out of it if these guys make an error. Like, yeah, Ryan Mountcastle should have called a fly ball the other day. That doesn't mean you need to give up a double to the next hitter. You know, you got to go out there and you got to get the next guy out, shake it off, errors happen. Unfortunately, they're happening too much right now for the Orioles. Hopefully, they correct those things in the next couple of weeks before we get to the regular season. Now, I have to get Stan on the line, but one guy who's performing really well for the Orioles right now, five scoreless innings, is Bruce Zimmerman. This is a local guy, went to Loyola. He's from Ellicott City. Um, You want to talk a little bit about him. Yeah, so Bruce Zimmerman acquired from the Braves a few years ago in the 2018 season where the Orioles traded off a lot of their uh, you know, top guys. Um, and, you know, Bruce Zimmerman was never really a top prospect. No, no one really was super excited when Bruce Zimmerman came over, but everyone thought, okay, this is maybe, you know, a future four, maybe a future five starter. And Bruce Zimmerman made his MLB de- debut last year, had over a seven ERA. He didn't pitch great, but he did have a couple outings at the end of the year that, w- that was a little better. Um, and he's a local guy, so it's, it's a great story, number one. But this spring 
training, Bruce Zimmerman to me looks like a different pitcher. His stuff has great shape. It's breaking a ton. He just looks like a more refined pitcher. He's really worked on on every pitch he's got. He's got a solid four pitch mix. Um, you know, he can touch 95. I was looking at some of his pitch tracks, and and he's really hitting about 93 to 95, which is really solid for a starter. Um, you know, his stuff is just it's breaking like crazy. He's 10.8 Ks per nine. He's only given up one hit in five innings. This is a guy the Orioles need to use. They need to absolutely use this guy this year because, you know, he, he, he's ready. He's major league ready. He's, Mike Elias doesn't bring up guys until they are. And he, he brought them up in 2020, so that signals to me Bruce Zimmerman's ready to go. Put him in the five spot. You know, I, I don't want to see Matt Harvey or Wade the block. I want to see Bruce Zimmerman there. That, that's so much more fun, and, and the Orioles can get a lot more out of that and, and teach Bruce Zimmerman, you know, some things and, and work with him there instead of putting a guy like Matt Harvey or Wade LeBlanc. Throw Zimmerman in there just like you are with Aiken and Kramer and let him work. I, I really am excited to see what he has this year. Well, I think that we certainly all can be excited to see what yep. Bruce Zimmerman has, along with a lot of these other young pitchers that the Orioles have. The one thing I will say, and I said this on the show last week, Buck Walter always used to say a lot of fools are made by March and September. Uh, very, no, very true. Very and true. I remember a few years back, Mike Wright, he had he had come into a relief role the year before, and he had looked pretty strong pitching one yeah. inning at a time. And then he comes into spring training, and he's got like a, a 3.38 ERA through four starts. And everybody's thinking, oh, it's Mike Wright. He's 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 finally arrived. Yep. And yep. But then it turns out he's Mike Wright. You know what I mean? So it's like the Jake Fox effect. Sure. So I'm not saying that that's the case of Bruce Zimmerman. We just have to be wary of the fact that that springtime stats don't usually mean a lot one way or the other. With that in mind, I have Stan the Fan Charles on the line. First and foremost, Stan, how are you this morning? I'm good. How are you guys doing? How are you doing, Zach? I'm pretty good, Stan. Thanks. Uh, we're, we're, we're doing well. Now, we have been talking a little bit about this Orioles rotation and how they've been leaving a lot to be desired this spring to this point. John Means had a nice outing um, yesterday, the first starter to go four innings. Bruce Zimmerman, does he deserve a, leg- a legitimate shot at this rotation? Uh, depends upon when you're saying does he deserve a shot. I, I think they're kind of committed to two, two really young pitchers and Kramer and Aiken right now. And I think the best role for Bruce Zimmerman, and I'm only talking about at the outset of the season, because by the end of April, either Felix Hernandez, who I think is going to be on this team, either Felix Hernandez, Keegan Aiken, or Dean Kramer, one of them's going to blow a flat tire, uh, either an injury or poor performance. And I think that's about the time I'd be looking for Zimmerman and by the way, this doesn't exclude this, but say none of them are having a flat tire, that's about the time of the season where I think you might want to have a sixth starter. So I don't think he's ready for the fifth starter role. I think he's either ready for that in May or a new sixth starter role uh, that might evolve this season as well. I definitely agree with most of what Zach was saying there. I think he is about as ready as he can be. It looks like he's really made some improvements uh, between you know two years ago and th- and this year. Uh, and I think this is his time. But I just would pump the brakes a little bit in throwing him right into the rotation. I think there's a big difference for a young pitcher like him facing batters one time around rather than two and three. And I would just like to see them go a little bit slow with him, but I think we'll see him plenty this year, no question about it. 
Well, and Stan, so this time, this time two years ago in 2019, uh, John Means, a, another young Orioles starter, wasn't even on the team's radar. Next thing you know, yep. that season he's an all-star for the club. This year he's going to be the opening day starter, assuming his health. He goes four innings yesterday, and he uh, only gives up the one earned run on two hits with one walk and four strikeouts. First off, he had, I didn't realize this. He had zero strikeouts in his first two starts yeah. this yeah. spring. But how important was it to see an Orioles starter be effective after the slow start to the spring? I think it's it's pretty it's uh you know it's pretty important to have at least one guy that you can sort of count on you know I again use that expression pump my brakes I mean John Means is not Mike Messina yet you know uh, in terms of the body of work um, he that first season I think he threw about what 140 innings or something like that um, and you know. Uh, he's he's number one. There's no question on this team right now. He's number one. I'd say the other guy that's opened my eyes this spring is uh, Georgie Lopez a little bit, that he's going to be ready to be a part of this rotation. The other three, I, I, I still really like Dean Kramer. You know, uh, I don't know how consistent he's going to be, but I think he's got a real upside. Aiken could, got a chance to be a solid contributor and look, we're getting the tail end of Felix's career, but I think somehow he'll he'll patchwork together uh, at least a half a season where he'll be, you know, uh, effective enough to to throw out there right now and buy some time for Zach Loder and Michael Bauman and Alexander Wells. Now, speaking of Felix Hernandez, have you been at all? Um, surprised with his performance. He has he he's looked effective at times. It seems like he'll have one good inning and a, a bad inning um, in his two starts with the Orioles this spring. Is this about what you expected? Should we read anything into this? The velocity is still only sitting in the mid eighties. What are you looking for from well, him as he looked I, up to that? I'm not I'm not you know going over these performances with a fine tooth comb. Right. I, you know I'm going to defend a you know I'm going to defend a you know I'm going to defend a you know, I'm gonna defer. 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 You know, I'm gonna defer clearly to Mike Elias and his staff on whether he belongs on this team. My gut feeling is of the three guys, LeBlanc, Harvey, and Felix. Felix is sort of uh, out in front of those two guys. Uh, LeBlanc might have with the Harvey injury might have a renewed chance to, to hang on. Uh, I don't think, uh, did I, I, with the Matt, with the Hunter Harvey injury, he's got a renewed chance to hang on, but I don't think Matt Harvey's got any chance to make this team at all. Yeah, Stan, I agree with you there. And I watched Felix Hernandez pitch the other day against the Pirates in, in the spring training game on TV. And, you know, his stuff looks really good to me. He had a good changeup. He had a really good slider. It's just a fastball that he kind of just can't control anymore. And, you know, 86 yep. miles an hour, when you float that in there, really anywhere across the plate, it's going to get hit. And guys hit that a lot. So, you know, Felix Hernandez, I think the breaking stuff's there. I just don't think the fastball's there at this point. It's it's not it's not going to be back in the nineties. There's right. no question about it. I mean, but I think Felix Hernandez. I I do think there is a little something to the fact that he hasn't pitched competitively in a games in a year. 
you know, so, uh, you know, Lander take year off and I think they're 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 taking that into account. And I look for him to pitch a little bit better. I'm not expecting a, a world beater out of him, but I'm expecting a guy who might take some pressure again with so much of the Orioles, you're sort of buying time for the, the cavalry to come, you know, which are the higher level prospects to make it to the major leagues. Now, Stan, you mentioned the Hunter Harvey injury. Um, first of all, why can't this guy stay healthy? If it's not one thing, it's the other every, every well, single season. You know, he's become, you know, there's a line sort of in, in life and in business. Uh, is, is, is somebody worth, you know, is the juice you get worth the squeeze? And I, I really think we've reached a point. This guy was not drafted in 2015 or 16. This guy was drafted in 2013, and he's pitched 15 big league innings. Uh, you know, look, I'm not saying you release the guy, but the, the notion that he's someone that suddenly out of the fog you're going to be able to depend on to be a, a, an important late-inning leverage relief pitcher, I think you're, you're sort of wasting your time in a certain extent. And when I say that, I don't say it heartlessly. Look, he'll have opportunities to prove that I'm Stan Charles is wrong, but I just think the the, the juice isn't worth the squeeze anymore. Well, you know? if if he can't be on the field, you know, he's basically yeah. taking up a, four, but, a forty man spot. But they ask me why can't he stay healthy? I have no idea why he can't stay healthy. <laughs> Fair it's enough. Not Fair a, enough. It's not a good. It's the optics of it are not good. You know, so wait, Stan, I mean, you're, you're you know, saying yeah, going into this season, I'm sure in uh, Michael Elias and Brandon Hyde's mind's eye, they thought this is this is the guy we're going to count on to be our late inning guy, and now that's been thrown asunder again. You know, so so Stan, what you're saying is you're not this guy's primary care physician. No. <laughs> now you mentioned that I feel bad. I feel bad for him. I do he's too. A good kid, and he's he's got a world of talent. But uh, I'm just sort of saying it's time for the Orioles to kind of not take him that seriously until he proves uh, and proves us wrong. You know, they should certainly move forward with yep. assuming he's not part of their plans until he is. Yep. Now, yep. you mentioned that it could open a spot for a Wade LeBlanc on the roster, but what does it do for a Rule Five guy like a Max Aroller or a Tyler Wells? Tyler Wells, in particular, who's pitched pretty effectively this spring aside yeah. from his first appearance. Yeah, I think I think it opens up a spot for a, a few different guys. You know, I think LeBlanc is one. I think Dylan Tate is one. I think Travis Lakins is one. And I think one, you know, I, I know how general managers think. I know it's human nature to not want their bosses to think that they just threw X amount of dollars, $100,000. Uh, and in the case of Scroller and... Uh, and um, what's the other? Uh, Tyler Wells, two hundred thousand dollars down the toilet, and just return them that quickly. Um, I th- I think one of the two of them might end up making the team now. You know, and my money would be on Wells. Yeah, I, my money would be on Wells too. And I think a lot of people thought he may have been the more polished pitcher, even though he was the second one taking taken in the draft. Um, yeah. Another Rule 5 guy, Gray Fenter, the Cubs The Cubs returned him to the organization yesterday. Uh, he's been assigned as a reserve for spring training for the Orioles. He's been assigned to the Twin Lakes Park. Um, 
were you surprised to see? I think we all kind of figured Fender would eventually be sent back because he has a little experience, even at the minor league yeah. level. But yeah, were you surprised str- to see him back was- so quickly? No, not really. I think they took a, a quick look at him, and for them, it was it was worth it. And uh, he was a guy you remember when we talked in November about the guys we were nervous about losing. Uh, Gray Fenter and Zach Pop were the two that we both kind of agreed on, and they were both taken. Uh, and again, I, I think I don't knock Mike Elias on many things. I think the Zach Pop back to bite him really come back to bite him on the ass. You know. I really do. Uh, you're you're pretty sure that the Marlins are going to find a way to hang on to him, aren't you? I don't. I think uh, if if Kim Ang needs any help, she'll call Dan Duquette, who will be all too happy to explain how that works. <laughs> Fair but enough. I don't expect him. Gonna, you know, I think they're going to DL him to begin the season. He'll be at their alternate site working, and then maybe they'll get him. You know. 45 days, you know, or something like that, and maybe another 20 here and there. And then that old notion that if he doesn't get that the first year, you got to turn him back is not really the case. We found with uh, Anthony Santander that you can do it over two years if injuries are part of the problem. And it's just sort of a, a, a protocol that you have to create and figure out how he's going to get a certain percentage of the days in 2021 and then you you just carry him over the next year. Now, I, I fully expect Zach Pop to be a very solid relief pitcher. I do, uh, I do in, too. In the big leagues. I do, too. Now, somebody who's been a solid pitcher in the past has not been solid this spring for the Orioles is Paul Fry. Came to the game yeah. yesterday, immediately gave up a three-run homer. He's allowed 10 earned runs in three and two-thirds innings pitched. Stan, that's a 24.55 ERA. He's given up 11 hits in three appearances. Uh, Brandon Hyde said his fastball has good velocity. His slider looks really good, so he's not overly concerned about this. But are you overly concerned? He has not been effective at all. I wouldn't say I'm overly concerned. Generally, what we find, and I say we, the collective we, you know, observers that study this stuff a little, at least a little bit, are that when a pitcher like that who's been so consistent for five years with the Orioles uh, and he comes to spring training, usually that old adage that he's working on something, he's working on a new pitch, um, is really turns out to be the case. So I would expect, I would expect if one or two more times down the road he's pitching one inning and letting up three or four runs, I'll be concerned. I'm at that, I'm at that level that my ears have kind of perked up listening. Uh, and now I gotta, I gotta see for myself what the hell's going on. Yeah. Now another guy, what the hell is going on? Ryan Mountcastle. He came up last year, hit three thirty five, led the team in OBP with a three eighty six on base percentage. Uh, but this spring, he's he, over three yesterday, two for nineteen. He has no walks. That's a one hundred five batting average and he a one hundred five on base percentage. He's not he's not walking this spring. Is he regressing or is he just being told, you know what, go up there, get your hacks? I would tend to think it's a little bit of the latter, but I think he needs to um, not assume that he's got a position all locked up. You know, I'm sure he's still got options left. So uh, I, I think I think he will, you know, this is about the time that somebody like that needs to sort of catch, catch a hold of themselves, take a deep breath, <clears throat> and sort of really go at it again a little differently and realize that this isn't this isn't 
a position that's given to you, you consistently have to earn it. Stan, we've we've talked a lot about Yusniel Diaz on the show, and, and with you as well. He's kind of struggled. You know, he, he hit that home run the first at bat of spring, and he's had a few hits mixed in here and there. But he's striking out every a ton. time. I, every time I turn around and look at a box score, he's batting two times, striking out two times. Yeah, batting once, striking out one time. Um, him, I'm a little concerned with. You know, me too. Really me too. The, the the strikeouts. Um, you know, it, generally he's not even making contact in the at bats, and at least in the games I've seen on TV. So I I think it's maybe a little bit time to get concerned there. Maybe the Orioles want him to work on his plate discipline a little bit. You know, when he gets sent to the alternate camp, and then maybe makes his major league debut when he's found a little bit more of plate discipline. But you yeah, know, it's, it's been a I rough think, spring. Yeah, it's been a rough spring for him, uh, and I think he's been given opportunity. You know, I think he's been given enough opportunity that if he were really performing incredibly well, you might have seen Mike Elias, like, you know, looking to trade Santander or so, or the club moving in the direction of making a spot for him because clearly he's a five-tool player, but those tools right now aren't adding up to major league ready. Um, and, you know, look, uh, he's not the first player that the Dodgers have hyped uh, in a trade um, that you've gotten burned by. Uh, but I think the notion that he, he was sort of the central return for Manny Machado, guy you wanted out of that little guy you wanted out of that deal, uh, so far he, he's coming up uh, way below expectation. Well, the fact that he hasn't reached the majors yet and the fact that he's still struggling in spring training almost three years after the trade is is a little alarming, but he's getting another opportunity today. He's playing right field, batting eighth yeah. against the Blue Jays. So he's gonna he's getting his hacks. Elias said he was going to – not Elias. Um, yeah, he's giving, him, he's giving him opportunity, and the only thing that sort of calms me down a little bit is the pandemic and the lost season last year. Right. You know, I really do believe – at AAA, he probably would have made his way to Baltimore. If that if that had been a regular season last year, from April 1st, I think he would have performed well enough to get a look-see in September. Well, and I still think that he has the opportunity and that he will perform well enough to get the opportunity. However, uh, people are talking about, oh, well, Santander is a trade chip. He's a trade chip. They have Yusniel Diaz coming. Yusniel Diaz hasn't done anything. He hasn't done anything for the Oral, for, for the Orioles to sit there and say, oh, well, we have him so we can trade Santander. If anything, I would look at it the other way around. Santander is establishing himself as one of the better players on the team, if not the league, and you have a guy who got traded over here who's still young. He hasn't made his major league debut. I'd I be just, looking to I, trade him. I just want to caution people on Anthony Santander. I, still, I like the guy. guy looks like a major leaguer. He smells like a major leaguer until you look at one column. There aren't a lot of star players that, after three years in the major leagues, haven't had one season with an on-base percentage above 300. No, that, okay? that's that, that's true. But I will tell yeah. you, he's walked seven times in 17 plate appearances. I'm this... happy for him. I'm very happy for him, and I'm very happy for the Orioles. Don't get me wrong; I like him because he has all the looks of that. And then, and then he, it's not not like it's been a nine-year career. But but all of a sudden I look at him and I go, geez, it was he's back under three hundred, and there aren't that many players. I'll tell you, the the guy he he reminds me of is Jonathan Scope. You know, Scope. I love Scope. And then I started looking at that with him, and I go, geez, it was he's you know he's been in the league five years, 
and his on-base percentage over the five years collectively is under 300. That's not that's not a stat that lies that often, you know. Yes, Dan, I think there's definitely an argument to trade Santander Diaz, but what kind of value do you think the Orioles could get for Diaz? Because he's still a young player. He's got five tools, like we said. I did not say trade Diaz. I'm saying that if if Diaz had been having a really good spring, you may have seen Michael Elias a little more aggressive at peddling uh, Santander. To be fair, I did say trade Diaz. If they were to trade Diaz, what kind of value do you think he could bring? I don't think he has much value right now at all. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I think the Orioles could try to you know get a get a position of need, maybe pitching in the farm system or maybe middle infield or, or something like that, where you know they, they are very deep in the outfield right now. So they could try to find a yeah. position of need there. I I think uh, I think there are a couple clubs that might like DJ Stewart. Uh, I don't think this guy has proven himself nearly enough to return anything worth. You know, I'd I'd rather wait it out ourselves with Diaz right now. And look, I hope I'm totally wrong. I hope Santander busts out this year and has a three thirty on base percentage, you know, or three forty and and knocks the cover off the ball because he's a good you can tell he's a good kid and he plays the game the right way, except that darn on base percentage and that's that's not usually an outlier as to what a guy's cap- capabilities are. Well, I certainly think that one way or the other we're going to see an outfielder walk out the, out the door for the Orioles at some point this year. I think that it's a position of strength for them, and I think that somebody's getting traded from that group of outfielders, uh, that they have seemingly six Major League-ready guys for three positions. Um, Stan, before we let you go, um, yep. you the Press Box is helping uh, Dick Gordon Sports host this virtual Carl Yastrzemski signing on April 12th. We have the ad in the print edition of Press Box Sports on page 33. Uh, tell us yep. a little bit about Dick Clark, um, how Press Box is helping him out, what, what they're doing Dick, with his signing. Dick Clark. I'm sorry, Dick, 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 Gordon, Dick Gordon. Yeah, I'm, I'm kidding. Dick Gordon Sports, <laughs> by the way. Um, we're not helping them out. They're helping us out. Fair and in return, we want to help them out. Uh, Dick Gordon is uh, someone who passed away about two, close to three years ago. He was the signature guru and he was a lawyer here in baltimore and he started representing players and before his career ended he represented uh, and he still his family does uh, carl yastrzemski but he also handled earl weaver's signature joe dimaggio's signature the longest relationship was with ted williams frank robinson this guy was a legend in the business his wife now is sort of running shows and they still have quite a relationship with Carl Yastrzemski. They have a virtual signing uh, that Carl's going to sign on Monday, April the 12th. All mail orders must be in by April the 7th, 2021. Uh, and if you go to DickGordonSports.com, uh, DickGordonSports.com, you can um, take a look. Uh, and I'll just remind people, I'm not trying to be maudlin here, if you're a collector of any any level, uh, you lost the opportunity to get Lou Brock merchandise, Tom Seaver merchandise. And I'm talking about new merchandise. You know, they will never sign again. We lost seven Hall of Famers last year. Carl Yastrzemski won't be here forever. This is a really good opportunity to get a bat, a picture, uh, something, some piece of memorabilia you want signed by Carl Yastrzemski. Go to Dick Gordon Sports and see what you have to do to send it uh, for for Carl to sign it on April 12th. They need 
all materials in by Monday, uh, by uh, April the 7th, 2021. And it's on the ad in this month's press box is on page 33 dickgordonsports.com. Yeah, certainly that and if you go there you can see all the all the pictures of Dick Gordon with all these big time stars, all the memorabilia. You can send it in. Get you have to get your stuff sent in by Wednesday, uh April 7th if you want to have it signed. Again, that's a virtual uh signing on uh Monday, April 12th at dickgordonsports.com. Stan, before we let you go, uh who yep. do you ha- who do you have coming up on Monday? Um I just talked to Ross last night. Ross reached out to an old friend, uh, Scott McGregor. We're going to have Scott McGregor on Monday night at 8 o'clock. And uh, then Wednesday night at 8 o'clock, Gary Stein and I will have uh, none other than um, uh, Kevin Coward, who wrote, of course, he wrote the book about um, the, the, the game that where no fans were, which was a rarity until last year. Uh, but he's got a new book out now called You Must Be Cinderella about the uh, UMBC team that beat Virginia three years ago in the uh, NCAA tournament and shocked the world. The book is You Must Be Cinderella. Currently up on our site most recently is an interview I did Thursday evening with Baltimore Blast owner Ed Hale. Absolutely. Uh, Stan, thank you so much for joining us. As always, you have All a right. great week. I'm not going to be here on the show next week because I'm going to be down in spring training, so I'll talk to you in two Zach's weeks. Gonna, Zach's going to run the whole show. Zach's, Zach's going to take over and maybe unseat me permanently. We'll see. We'll see. Well, it could work out that way. You know? uh, all right, Stan, you have a great weekend. Take care. Man. All right, guys. Thanks. And that was Stan the Fan, Charles, joining us for his weekly segment at 1020. And Stan used to be the host of this show, and he was gracious enough to let me take over for him. And if you're missing your Stan the Charles fix, Stan the Fan, Charles, has two great shows for you every week. And like everything else in the world, they're happening over Zoom. Every Monday night, Stan and former Orioles pitcher Ross Grimsley visit with a different guest from the world of baseball. And every Wednesday night, Stan and Gary Stein chat a different newsmaker in the world of sports. This week, Stan and Ross caught up with Jeff Lance, the director of communications for Minor League Baseball and former Orioles staffer and Stan caught up with Baltimore Blast owner Ed Hale later in the week as well. Both of those shows can be found under the videos tab at facebook.com slash pressboxsports or at pressboxonline.com This Monday at 8pm you just heard from Stan. He and Ross Grimsley will be catching up with Scott McGregor former left-handed pitcher for the Orioles and an Orioles Hall of Famer and then on Wednesday at 8 um, Stan and Gary Stein will be catching up with Kevin Cowherd who wrote the book on the fanless game uh, between the Orioles and White Sox back in 2015 who has a new book out called You Must Be Cinderella that's all about the UMBC uh, Golden Retrievers, or I'm sorry, the UMBC Retrievers basketball team that unseated the number one seed Virginia for the first win of a 16 seed over one seed in the history of the NCAA basketball tournament. So catch up with those shows and just remember that Stan's weekly shows are brought to you by C3 American Exteriors. Find them at C3America.com and call C3 American Exteriors to get roof and siding repairs for the cost of your home insurance deductible. Don't let the insurance industry get one over on you. Call C3 at 410-401-9797 or go to C3 America com for a free analysis. We got to catch a break. However, when we come back, very excited to talk with former Orioles manager Sam Perlazzo about Nick Markakis's retirement.
The Toyota Tacoma comes in a wide range of models and trim lines. You can choose the perfect Toyota to reflect your unique personality and driving habits. Check out buyatoyota.com for deals on new Tacomas from your local Toyota dealer today. Glory Days Grill's St. Patrick's menu is now available, and it's their most popular seasonal menu all year. New items include smoky thigh wings and bangers and mash. Favorites include corned beef and cabbage, shepherd's pie, and the Glory Days Reuben and the Rachel. Enter to win a brewery tour of the Guinness Open Gate Brewery outside of Baltimore. Details available at any Glory Days Grill. And enter online at glorydaysgrill.com slash brewery tour. The St. Patrick's menu is available for the whole month of March. Come in for great food, beer, and basketball. Download their app or order online at glorydaysgrill.com. Hey, Dad, can we try one of those hoagie things? <sighs> Sorry, son. We aren't hoagie people. What do you mean? Son, we're Royal Farms sub people, like my daddy was and his daddy before him, like you and me and all the folks we know. Gee, Dad, I never thought about it like that. So you're saying hoagie people are... Aliens, son. They're aliens. Royal Farm subs are Baltimore's best. Real fresh, real fast. Royal Farms. If it's happening in Baltimore sports and beyond, it's happening on Glenn Clark Radio. New Ravens linebacker Patrick Queen. Appreciate y'all. Trey Mancini. Thanks for having me on, guys. Glad to be back on. Ravens linebacker Matt Judon. Appreciate y'all. How y'all doing? Ravens kicker Justin Tucker. Thanks for having me. Adley Rutschman. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Coach Mark Turgeon. How you guys doing? Heston Kerstad. Thanks for having me. Joe Burrow. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Marlon Humphrey. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Coach Mike Loxley. Thanks for having me on. He is J.K. Dobbins. Thank Thank you for having me. I had a great time. The great Ray Lewis. Always good to be home. Dickie V, Dick Vitale. Lynn and Kyle, two diaper dandy. What's up, fellas? Hey, what's going on, Ed? Glenn and Kyle are live Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to noon, and archived anytime. Watch Facebook.com slash Sports and listen to PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. For more than 40 years, K&S Automotive has been repairing, restoring, and maintaining foreign and domestic vehicles with a focus on exceptional workmanship and customer service. Everything from oil changes to major body work. Call K&S now at 410-235-6600 or go to knsimports.com. That's K&S at knsimports.com. The latest edition of Press Box is available now. On the cover, a lengthy Q&A with Orioles manager Brandon Hyde as he candidly discussed the impact the pandemic has had on the team's rebuilding effort, Chris Davis, Adley Rutschman, and much more. Inside, find our special college lacrosse feature, introducing you to the men's and women's players at all of the area schools. Press Box is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores. And you can always find the entire edition, as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. Welcome back to the Bat Round. We're still getting Sam Perlazzo on the line. We're going to talk a lot about Nick Markakis, legendary Oriole, and of course, brave for six years in his career too. Nick, you know, a guy I think we need to talk more about as Orioles fans because 
you know, he just retired, and he really had such an impact for the Orioles. I'm not sure the Orioles would have had that, you know, those such good years in 2012, 2013, 2014 if Nick Markakis hadn't been there. And just honestly one of the, the best players throughout the Orioles' years where, you know, it, it was it was pretty dark. You know, it, they did not win a lot of games. You know, it, the dark ages of the O's from really 98 to 2011 and – Nick Markakis is one of the shining stars in that. Um, you know, I, I, I do remember seeing him come up through the minors. I was pretty young, but um, Markakis is a guy who really developed into the player everyone thought he was going to. Maybe never developed that power, but, um, you know, I'm really excited to talk about Nick Markakis because he is just such a legendary Oriole. So whenever we can get him on the line here, um, you know, it, it's it's as Orioles fans, we hope that someday – there will be more players like Nick Markakis on this team. You know, such a leader, um, you know, a guy who, who really exemplified the Oriole way. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's great to see him have the career he did. Um, and, and, you know, he, he really is not a Hall of Famer, but a Hall of very good players guy. You know, a really, a really just we, – we should appreciate him more as Orioles fans. And I hope that a guy like Austin Hayes or DJ Stewart or someone like that can become what Nick Markakis was to Baltimore. I, I, I think that would be very important for this franchise. Well, yeah, certainly what Nick Markakis meant to this franchise can't be um, understated or overstated for that matter. Uh, he was an important player. He was, he was really that first guy who kind of gave you a glimmer of hope to get out of those dark ages, and I know that he was in his sixth year, seventh year, in Baltimore before they finally made it to the playoffs, and we saw him get hit by that 93-mile-an-hour fastball on his thumb um, by CC Sabathia in that early series in September when the Orioles and Yankees were battling out for the division. And actually, I think that's Sam calling right now. It was just it was difficult to see him miss his first postseason. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely was. And while we get Sam Perlazzo on the line here, we're going to talk a lot more about Nick Markakis. So just give us one second here and we'll be ready to go. Sam obviously managed uh, Nick Markakis in his early years of the Orioles back in 2006 when his rookie campaign had him at sixth in the rookie of the year standings. And now we have Sam Perlazzo on the line. Thank you for that, Zach. Sam, how are you doing this morning? Doing good, doing good. Sam, thank you so much for joining the program with us today. Um, before we get started, so my birthday is September 13th. Does that date hold significance uh, to you? September 13th? September 13th. Oh, no, should it? Well, I actually, I was looking up your playing career last night, and it's, it's a weird factoid for me because September 13th is my birthday. Your major league debut was September 13th, 1977, and your final major league appearance as a player was September 13th, 1979. I found it interesting that you, were, that you had your debut and your final game on the same day a couple of years apart. Not that interesting of a factoid if you, if you, <laughs> if you don't have a birthday on that date, but I found it interesting. So, um, That's great. Uh, moving on to, like I said, moving on to more interesting things, uh, Sam, one of the reasons that we have you on the program today is because Nick Markakis, uh, re just retired from Major League Baseball after a 15 year playing career. Uh, he retired yesterday and you were Nick's first manager when he got to the big league level. Uh, what can you tell us first and foremost about Nick as a player and then as a man? Well, I'll tell you how that whole thing went down. We went to spring training, uh, I probably didn't think Nicky was going to be on the roster. He was young, hadn't, you know, played much. And uh, so we, 
we got down to the end of spring training, and we had a little powwow with the GMs, and they were, they were talking about Nicky making a team. And I said, you know, I didn't have a problem with Nick making the team at all. The problem was it was going to give me like six outfielders. And I said, how am I going to get everyone some playing time, you know? Right. And he said, you'll, you'll find out. You'll, you'll figure it out. So Nick's like, I'm not going to keep Nick without playing. Well, you know, I- if any, anybody's going to go out there and play, whether they're struggling or not, it's going to be Nick. Well, that's what we, we, we felt he was that kind of a player. Well, certainly they, he was taken seventh overall in the first round of the draft. Um, came up now, and he, he, he honestly he had a really big spring in 2006, and he played his way onto that roster. Now, to start that 2006 season, he did his first major league hit um, was, was a home run, and he did get hits in 10 of his first 12 starts uh, for the Orioles. However, he got off to a bit of a slow start uh, in his career with the Orioles. He was batting 219 at the end of May. He was batting 228 heading into the last week of June of that season. Was there ever at that point thought to sending him down thinking maybe we brought him up a little too soon? Uh, there actually was. We uh, discussed, uh, We discussed. Uh, you know, after it got to a point where it just looked like he was really scuffling and pressing, so I had sat down with the the brass and the, we said, you know, how long you want to go with Nikki, you know, and they were a little concerned too. So they they said, let's give him two more weeks and then we'll uh, we'll make a decision. And from that point on, Nikki just took off. It was like I moved him in the batting order, and I said, okay, you know, he started hitting the ball. I think I said, I think it was like. I'm going to hit you third, Nick. Now, I don't want you thinking about home runs and things like that. Just go be yourself. Of course, Nick was he was a, just a quiet professional baseball guy, even when he was young like that. And it didn't bother him. He didn't care where he hit. But I, but I wanted to make sure he didn't do that. Well, the first time I think he got up after I told him that he hit a homer. <laughs> so, out of the three hole, he's starting to hit. And I said, uh... Nicky, I think I'm going to move you into the four hole. Now, don't be thinking about home runs and stuff like that. And once you know it, he tries to get out in that game and hits another homer. So, <laughs> from that point on, Nick just took off. I mean, he finally relaxed, used his abilities, just went out and played ball every day. Well, it was amazing how we had given him. We had given him about another two weeks. We thought. And it's almost like he knew it and just took off with it. Well, and at that point, when I said that he was hitting 228, the date was June 22nd. From June 23rd to the end of the season, that was about 83 games for Nick, he batted 329 Those the, yep. the last half of that season. Uh, finished the year with a 291 average. He only had four home runs going into August, and then he had a 10-homer month in August. And I'll never forget the game against the Twins that, that month where he homered three times. The Orioles got a win. His batting average was sitting at 306 after that game. Would you say that that game against the Twins was really Nick's coming out party and his way of saying, you know what, I'm here, and I'm here to stay? Uh, yeah, you could say that. I just, you know, Nick was like a, he was so quiet that he could just go out and do his business. You couldn't tell if he was pressing him or not pressing, really. You'd have to take a guess at it because he was going to go out and give you everything he had every day and every night. But 
once he started hitting the ball right into that June area where we, we were talking about, he just, I thought it was somewhere in that, that kind of a place where he just took off. And, of course, the homers, the homers come when he, he started to relax and realize that that's, he can play in the big leagues. And, uh, it was just, he was an amazing player at that point. Hey, Sam, it's Zach Goodman. And Nick finished uh, sixth in Rookie of the Year voting. Justin Verlander actually won in that season. But do you think Nick should have finished a little bit higher, maybe even first in Rookie of the Year voting in 2006? Well, I don't remember who the other rookies were. I think the first half probably uh, hurt Nick, you know. But at the end, his numbers were pretty darn good. So he could have easily won that thing. Well, and, that's how good he was playing for that for that period of time. That's how good he was playing. He was that means he was playing exceptional baseball to end up where he was. And Nick was Nick basically from the get go was always a solid player. Finished his career with a two eighty eight average of three fifty seven on base percentage. Nearly twelve. So they saw because we know so they saw because we know 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 that he was also um, considered a first round talent as a pitcher, and the Orioles decided to uh, keep him as an outfielder. No, I think I think Nicky was just. I mean, we, we, we thought he was going to be a good, really good player. There's no question about that. You know, it was just about how soon do we want it to happen and uh, let's, let's make the, the right move and not, not uh, cause things to go backwards and all like that. But i tell you what, he didn't make many mistakes. For a young kid, he didn't make many mistakes. I mean, if you... He didn't go wild in the outfield. He didn't overthrow trying to get someone he shouldn't be getting. He just went and played the way you're supposed to play every day. And you didn't even know he was in the clubhouse. <laughs> yeah, he was he was he was certainly always considered a quiet guy, but always considered a good clubhouse guy. Um, I think that that's why he his career always resonated with me was because you just saw him go out and do his job and you never you I, I think I saw Nick get ejected from a game once in his entire career he he never talked to the umpires he never made a show of himself he just went out and did his job day in and day out and did it very well now I just mentioned he was taken in the first round by the one in the first round to a number but he could have gone in the first round to a number of other teams as a pitcher was there ever any consideration into making him a pitcher in Baltimore not that I recall. Now, if he probably would have, if he would have fallen totally on his face offensively, then then I would say that that would be a uh, that was being always a backup plan to go to. But from when I was there, he was a he was considered a, an outfielder, a hitter that was going to help us, you know, with lots of things: homers, RBIs, run scores. I never, I never, I don't think I've ever seen him get on the mound. Yeah, I would I would imagine not if he's if he's been if he was brought in to be a to be a position player and he hit from the day he stepped foot on the Orioles affiliates field, I can imagine he never would have stepped on a mound. Now, Nick has he he had quite a career. The guy was you could pencil him in for 155 games, uh, about 180 to 190 hits, and you know 15 to 20 homers. This was a guy you could put into the two or three slot in your order, and you knew that he was going to get the job done. And he was really the first guy that gave the Orioles a glimpse of the future, a hope that better days were coming, because when he came up, they were in the midst of 14 straight losing seasons. 
And despite the fact that Nick was usually the best player on the team, the best overall player on the team, he never made an all-star game in Baltimore. Never made an all-star team except for one time in his 15-year career, despite the fact he led the American League in war in 2008. Why was Nick Markakis so underrated? I just think he was just quiet. He, he was just quiet. You know, I, I tell, I've told some, probably some Hall of Fame guys that never won a gold glove, you know, and I said, you know, you'll get just a little bit better, you'll win a gold glove. You know why? And they'll say, because I can hit. It's kind of like what what goes on with Nicky, you know. He, he just went out and played the game, and you didn't notice him as much. He wasn't flamboyant. But if you zeroed in on him, I mean, it, he was daily. He was daily. He like, like I said, he didn't make mistakes. I mean, there wasn't mental things going on. He knew what the heck he was doing from the get-go. And he just battled his way through it. So, yeah, he should have been there several times. Certainly, Nick Markakis, in my opinion, he should have been at least a five-time All-Star. It's a shame he only won one Silver Slugger, especially when you look what he did in 2007 um, in his sophomore year, hitting over 300, 23 homers, 110 RBIs. He had an absolutely stellar season and got zero accolades for it. He was, in my opinion, he's one of the most underrated players of the game. Um, now, with Nick Markakis, there was talk Don't that... Don't underestimate him, though. I know there's... I've been around a lot of big league players that had pretty darn good careers that didn't get what I thought they should get either. And uh, I know we can talk about it, and, and we're, we'd be totally honest and 100% correct in what we say. But he, he definitely was, he was definitely in the top tier guys. After 2014, Nick obviously went to the Atlanta Braves, and you know, really, the Orioles had a great season in 2014. They won the AL East, and probably would have done a little bit better in 2015 had Nick Markakis been on that team. And the Orioles originally had made an offer, but eventually pulled it back because of the neck injury that Nick Markakis suffered. What do you think would have been different for Nick Markakis and the Orioles had he re-signed in 2015? Well, you know, I, I look at all the teams. I managed a couple, you know. Baltimore, and you've got to have a stud guy in there. You know, there's there's somewhere in that lineup you got to have. You got to depend on someone. The guy's got to deliver for you. You know, the majority of the time, and somebody that can lead the team on the field. You know, as well as off the field. And even though Nicky was quiet, his his leadership abilities went to what he was doing on the field and what he does pregame, how he prepares. And how he goes about his business every day. Not not most of the days, but every day. And that's what he did. And it, you know, you need that kind of guy. You know, sometimes you get you get in a ball club that you can't replace five guys in your lineup every year. And then, you know, the ability to sign certain people uh, doesn't if you don't, if you're not capable of getting a first-tier guy, you know, you're constantly, you know, in a battle with trying to trying to catch up with everybody else all the time. So, I know he was well liked in Baltimore. Trust me. Oh yeah, we we absolutely love Nick Markakis in, in Baltimore. That's why we 
we speak so fondly of him and why we wanted to have you on the show to talk about him. Now, now, Sam, before we let you go, you, you've been out of Major League Baseball since 2011, I believe it is, when you were the third base coach with the Phillies. Now, uh, are you still active in baseball or are you fully retired at this point? Uh, I won't say retired. I don't have a job. Uh. <laughs> uh, actually, uh, up until this season, I was with the Twins for the seven years prior. Gotcha. I was the minor league infield coordinator for five years, and then the last two years I was the senior advisor uh, to player development and also helped out at the major league level for spring training and during the season. Um, rehab got infielders that would get sent down. Rocco would call me and meet them and things like that. So, you know, the, like, no COVID, COVID kind of, kind of, Paired a lot of uh, players back and coaches and stuff, so we'll see if I want to get back in there or not. You know, I, I understand that, and that seems to be a sentiment amongst a lot of people around baseball. And, you know, I knew that I saw you in baseball more recently than 2011, and I, and I apologize. I'm, I'm, I'm looking you up the other day, and it, it only told me about your major league career going up through the Phillies. So I apologize for not being better no prepared no in, in that no sense now. Uh, Sam, you're, you're. I started my career with the Minnesota Twins, and so far I've stopped there. So I got signed by the Twins, and uh, it was a good little run there. And uh, they're certainly a good organization to be a part of, considering how, how well they've been playing the last few years, been a playoff team the last couple of seasons at least. So now, Sam, you're a, you're a Maryland guy. You are born in Cumberland. Do you still keep up with the Orioles, or is it kind of you just focused on the team that you're with? Uh. I don't get in as much as I uh, I could get into because I stick with our guys. But, you know, I I had a blast in Baltimore. I was 12 years there. I'm a hometown guy. I went through like four managers. Uh, I was blessed to be there at home. You know, and you're playing your games in Camden Yards. I mean, how much better do you want it? So I, I really regret none of those years. I I enjoyed him thoroughly. Well, and I'll tell you when you were when you were named interim manager after uh, Lee Mazzilli uh, was let go by the ball club. A, a lot of people in Baltimore were excited because you had been there for so long. You've been a great within the base coach and a great coach within the organization, and it seemed like you deserved the job. Um, un- unfortunately, uh, it didn't end the way you would have wanted it to, and that, I, I don't believe that that was any fault of your own. It didn't seem like the the Orioles gave you much to work with. Um, when you look back on it, do you feel like if maybe you had a few more Nick Marcakis's, you could have done a lot better, you, you could have done a lot more with this ball club? Yeah, you know, everyone uh, everyone has some regrets about this, that, and the other. And uh, I look back at it, and I'm not going to say that I don't have any regret, regrets, but there's probably some things I might have liked to do, you know, as a rookie guy. Uh, we had two general managers at the time, so we had co-GMs. And, uh, I don't know. I think I could have. I wish I would have done a few things. Uh, I thought we were working on the right track, though. We had gotten Mazzoni over there for the pitching, and I thought we were actually, you know, putting some pitching together. But you can't do it all at once. I mean, we had a year and a half or so, didn't I? Yeah, and, uh, you had parts of three years, yeah. About a year and a half. Parts of three years, yeah. Two, 
That's a little difficult, although I thought we had some guys coming up. We had Bedard. We had Daniel Cabrera. I mean, we, we had some guys that I thought were uh, going to help us. And Lord knows in that division, you know, you know, with the Yankees and the Red Sox, when they were the real Yankees and the Red Sox, that's a tough division. Now, and I'm glad you mentioned Daniel Cabrera, because what I always found to be interesting about Daniel Cabrera was that he, from uh, from what I've heard, he didn't pick up a baseball for the first time until he was about 17 years old, and then the next thing you know, a few years later, he's pitching at the big league level, and there were times when he, I, I believe his first start of his career was a shutout against the Chicago White Sox. That was, there was some untapped potential there, and then he bounced around the league a little bit. Is Was Daniel Cabrera really... Was he one of those guys who you had high expectations for that just kind of fizzled out, or was he always going to be a project? Uh, we didn't – I really I, – every time, this is honest to God, if, if Daniel got the first hitter out of the game, I thought he had the potential to throw a no-hitter. If he walked the first guy, we, I felt like we might scuffle unless we can get out of that inning. But he had a power, power fastball. We loved him. Mazzoni and I, we, we loved him, you know. And I think when he, his, you know, he'd have a little command problems at times, which, you know, happens to everybody. But, I mean, he was an arm. He was a legit arm. And we felt, you know, we could we could build with him and uh, Adam Lowen and Bedard. I mean, we started to throw some guys out there that we thought could compete every night. And, and Daniel was one of them, for sure. I think what happened, uh, I think some people kind of lost, I don't know, I guess they just got tired of command issues or whatever, and they started letting him cut the ball and sink in the ball, and shoot, he had one of the best fastballs around. Yeah, you, you mentioned him, you mentioned Adam Lowen, and, and I look back, at some of these, uh, some of these pitchers that the Orioles had that were highly touted, you, you think of a guy like a like a Matt Riley and, uh, and uh, Garrett Olson and and these guys that all fizzled out. You, when you think back on it, these were supposed to be the next crop of great young pitchers coming through the Orioles system, and it's just it, it seemed like the organization was snake bitten. Did you ever get that sense that you all were snake bitten because you know Lowen has that fracture in his arm and never comes back again? Daniel Cabrera couldn't get the command under under control. Riley and Olson never lived up to what they were expected to be. And in Olson's case, it's it's appendicitis or it's a, the, a splintered bat impaling him. It just seemed like this franchise was snake bitten when it came to these young pitchers. Well, I, we never felt that as a staff. We 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 thought we were building something, and, and it was going to come to fruition. Quite honestly, you know, down the road, other staffs might have had some of those guys and thought that way. We did not. They were our guys. You know, it's hard to find those kind of guys. You know, I, I some of those young kids like Adam Lawn. One time, I went out to him and the bases loaded against the Mets and. Fifth inning, I'm trying to get him a W, and he's got to face David Wright. And I go out, and I, you know, reverse psychology. I said, you getting tired, son? He says, I don't get tired. <laughs> I turned around and went back in. That kind of stuff. You can go ahead and give up a hit now. I don't care. And, that, and that's, that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to put those three guys. We had Chris Benson. I mean, it's not like we didn't. We weren't building something, you know. With a few veterans here and there, and uh, it just didn't just didn't work. But 
And that, that, that's could always done better. I could always done better too. Yeah, we all could always do better. You know what I mean? And it, it it wasn't for lack of trying. And you know, Adam Lowen, one of those guys. He he reached the majors as a pitcher. Uh, then he reaches the majors again as a hitter. He was certainly an athlete and uh, deserved a better fate. Sam, thank you so much for joining our program today. It was a pleasure to talk to you, and thanks for giving us some time to talk about Nick's career. Uh, it was good to talk. Uh, you, you have guys. you have a good one, and good luck to you. Thank you, sir. That was Sam Perlazzo joining us here in the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio to talk about Nick Markakis and some of the uh, some of the young Orioles pitchers back when he was a manager who just kind of fizzled out or never never quite got where they were hoping. It's it's interesting um, to hear him say, and I, and I tend to agree with him in this sense, Zach, that you know he he really wasn't given enough time to get the Orioles where he thought they could go. It, it, it's it's just... You can't build anything in, in two and a half seasons. I mean, that's just not really how it works. Um, you know, it, you have to stick around for a long time. Like it, It's it's the same story as right now. If the Orioles were to fire Brandon Hyde for poor performance, you would say that's not fair because he hasn't had any time to build anything. And that's kind of the same thing that happened to Sam, unfortunately. Um, you know, you, you've got to keep these managers around while you actually build something. And Sam was talking about they had talent. You know, it may have not worked out exactly how they wanted to, but they had talent. They were, they were building something there. Maybe if they had held on a little bit longer, maybe 2009, 2010 would have been a little bit different for the O's. Well, certainly. And they, they go and they trade Eric Bedard in 2008 yeah. to, get, to get Adam Jones, to get George Sherrill. They get Chris Tillman out of that. Um, you know, if Adam Lowen doesn't fracture his forearm, he, he had a, he had a, like a 3-8 ERA when, when he got hurt that year. Uh, you don't know what he what he could have become. He he didn't he didn't get back to pitching until like 2016. After that, he he had to be he had to become an outfielder, and he did reach the majors for a cup of coffee as an outfielder with the Blue Jays uh, one season. It just goes to show what kind of an athlete that he's a major league player yeah. as an, as a hitter and as a pitcher. Uh, it just it was a shame for Sam Palazzo that he wasn't able to get a longer opportunity. A really good baseball guy. And I, oh, I, yeah, I sure. remember I was thrilled when he became the Orioles manager. Not thrilled with the way that it had to happen because that was in the t- in 2005 and I know we're running a little long here but that was in 2005 when the um the Orioles got off to a really really hot start they had Tejada and Javi Lopez and Rafael Palmero Brian Roberts was having a career year and they were 14 games over 500 in June and they finished the season 14 games under 500 I'll never forget Tim Kirkson saying the Orioles were the first team in major league history to at any point in the season be 14 games above 500 and finish 14 games below not great 500 and that got Lee Mazzilli fired that's and the that season got derailed with the Rafael Palmero steroid um positive test right you you can ask people to a man and they'll say that threw a wrench in our entire season it, it, it was like what do we do from here massive talent on that team though yeah. a massive talent uh, 2004 was arguably one yeah. of the best offensive clubs i can ever remember Miguel Tejada was unbelievable yeah. in yeah. 2004 and yeah. like that that club in 2004 was so talented even yeah. david newham was hitting over 300 they scored a ton of runs they won 78 games that year and i was like then they got off to the hot start in 2005, and we thought it was over. We thought it was over, and then right back in the cellar. It was. It was. Uh, 2005 was one of the more heartbreaking seasons yeah. of, of of my life, guys. We have got to get a break if we want to get any semblance of Orioles banter in today. So we're going to go ahead and do that right now. When we come back, some Orioles banter before we have our pre-recorded interview with Melanie Newman. 
Glory Days Grill's St. Patrick's menu is now available, and it's their most popular seasonal menu all year. New items include smoky thigh wings and bangers and mash. Favorites include corned beef and cabbage, shepherd's pie, and the Glory Days Reuben and the Rachel. Enter to win a brewery tour of the Guinness Open Gate Brewery outside of Baltimore. Details available at any Glory Days Grill. And enter online at glorydaysgrill.com slash brewery tour. The St. Patrick's menu is available for the whole month of March. Come in for great food, beer, and basketball. Download their app or order online at glorydaysgrill.com. For more than 100 years, Chesapeake Employers Insurance has been helping Maryland businesses keep their workers safe. With competitive pricing and an AM Best, A- financial strength rating, it's no surprise that Chesapeake Employers is Maryland's largest writer of workers' comp insurance. At the end of every workday, someone's waiting for your safe return. Connect with your agent or visit CEIWC.com. C3 American Exteriors is the area's best and most trusted roof and siding specialists. C3 is also an insurance adjuster's worst nightmare and a homeowner's dream come true. With all of the bad weather, chances are you have some roof and siding damage. Call C3 American Exteriors now to get your roof and siding repairs for the cost of your deductible. Don't let the insurance industry get one over on you. C3 guarantees a 48-hour rapid response. Call 401-9797 or go to C3America.com for a free analysis. Hey, Dad, can we try one of those hoagie things? Sorry, son. We aren't hoagie people. What do you mean? Son, we're Royal Farms sub people, like my daddy was and his daddy before him, like you and me and all the folks we know. Gee, Dad, I never thought about it like that. So you're saying hoagie people are... Aliens, son. They're aliens. Royal Farm subs are Baltimore's best. Real fresh, real fast. Royal Farms. The biggest pro wrestling stars today and all time all have one thing in common. You've heard them on Jobbing Out. Brent the Hitman Hart. It's good to be on the show. Adam Cole. How are you guys doing today? Matt Riddle. Yeah, man. Thanks, man. Broken Matt Hardy. Excellent. The bad guy, Scott Hall. Mm, hey, yo. Keith Lee. Appreciate you guys having me, man. Bill Goldberg. My pleasure. Charlotte. Thank you so much for having me. Mick Foley is with us. This is the greatest name for a wrestling show I've ever heard. MJF. I'm glad you're happy I'm on this show because I'm freaking miserable. Le champion! Chris Jericho. Le champion. AJ, Aaron, Brandon, and Glenn are talking pro wrestling every week on Jobbing Out. Find it at pressboxonline.com slash radio, iTunes, and SoundCloud. All right, welcome back to the Battle Round. Coming to you from the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio. Uh, I just want to remind you, every Monday through Friday, Glenn Clark and Kyle Ottenheimer bring their pragmatic and irreverent approach to Baltimore sports via PressBox's Glenn Clark Radio. Watch the show at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports and listen at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. You never know who might pop up on GCR. This week, the guys caught up with Ravens offensive lineman Bradley Bozeman, potential Ravens first-round pick Aziz. Oh, my goodness. I don't know how to pronounce this name. Aziz Uhilare. 
Mount St. Mary's coach Dan Engelstad after they punched their NCAA tournament ticket and more. Find those interviews today in the Glenn Clark Radio Week in Review feature at PressBoxOnline.com. That's PressBoxOnline.com. I apologize to the potential first-round pick, Aziz Ohulari. Uh, Ohulari? I, I, we'll I, go with that. I, I, I guess. Oh my, oh, my God. I have no idea how to pronounce that name. I'm usually pretty good at stuff like that. also want to remind you that I'm not going to be in studio next week. I will be on my way to Sarasota while this show is going on. I'm hopeful to be the third guest on the program at about 11.35 next week. But Zach is going to be taking over as host. Uh, he'll probably still be sitting in the same chair because Kyle Ottenheimer will bring his pragmatic and irreverent approach to the bat around. Uh, he'll be producing the show next week, so we're looking forward to that. I'll still talk with you all a little bit that, that week, hopefully right after I get off the plane, but my first foray into spring training in my entire life. So I'm very excited to go to an Orioles game since I probably can't go to opening day, but I'm not sour about that at all now, am I? Um, Orioles banter, we're about halfway to opening day, so we're going to give a little bit of a progress report here for the Orioles. Um, Not the prettiest stat lines for anyone, but, you know, Austin Hayes and Cedric Mullins have lit it up, but pitching in the defense has left a lot to be desired for sure. Yeah, they, they, I I just realized that I put up an ad way too early. Uh, uh, oh, well. the Glory Days was on for the, about the first ten minutes of the show, so they got twenty minutes, and then I put, it, it it evens out. It it'll, e- it'll work out. All right. it, it evens out. Um, I don't know why I did that. I, I have no idea why I did that. Anyway, no, the Austin Hayes, Cedric Mullins, that battle for center lighting field. They're, they're really letting it up. Hayes yeah. batting three sixteen, Mullins batting three eighty one. Really putting getting getting the barrel to the ball. Mullins, man, it's amazing what you can do. When you just completely get rid of the weakest part of your game, and, right. and, yeah. and, and let's be perfectly honest, the weakest part of Cedric Mullins' game was batting from the right side. And look, dude, yeah. you don't need to do that. So get rid of it. it and, and he finally did, and now he's tearing the cover off the ball. And this is a guy who's making a statement, and he's saying, "I am not a fourth outfielder. I'm an everyday player. Just because he's not going to hit 25 to 35 home runs." Doesn't mean you can't be a solid everyday player. You look at, we compared him to Michael Bourne last week. You look at John Jay, who I hope he's more than John Jay. John Jay's a good hitter, but a singles hitter. Probably a fourth outfielder, too, for most teams. Yeah, but, but, but you can make a career without having to hit a yeah. bunch of home runs. Nick Markakis didn't hit yeah, a bunch of go, didn't didn't hit a bunch of home runs and he had a borderline Hall of Fame career borderline. He's not a Hall of Famer, but you know, if he had you give Markakis an extra 15 hits every year, he he's probably got close to 2800 hits. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, maybe a guy like Ender Enciarte, you know, he has he's not on the team anymore uh, as far as I know right now, but he, you know, he played for Atlanta for a while, great center fielder, great defense and hit a little bit too. So, you know, maybe a guy like that is what Cedric Mullins can turn into, but you know, he got rid of the right-handed swing and like you said, he he took out his weakness. That was what he was probably focusing on all the time, thinking about how am I going to hit from the right side this time? How am I going to hit? Now he's absolutely smashing the ball. He's had a ton of exit velocities, over 100, which is what they're looking for for sure. Um, he's hitting the ball hard even when he's making outs. He, he's hitting it into the gap. And guys are making good plays. I've seen it, you know, a couple, um, you know, he's been robbed of a couple hits already, as as has Austin Hayes. And, you know, that's all you want to see. You want to see him hitting the ball hard. It's not even really the batting average that matters that much. It's just consistent at-bats and hitting the ball hard. That's what, And he has, and he really has. Well, and you look at it, and you're not saying that he's an all-star, oh, right? Oh, for sure, for sure. But there's no really glaring weakness on Cedric Mullins at this right. point, because even if maybe his arm strength is it, a little bit lacking, right? But but Johnny Damon made a hell of a career yeah, with, uh, 
and I mean, let's be fa- you know what? I'm not even going to say it because in it, with with he had a very poor throwing motion and a very weak arm. He had a very weak arm. And Cedric Mullins, I think, probably has a stronger arm than him, yeah. but he's super fast. If the ball's hit in the air, he's going to get to it. And even if he's slumping at the plate, he can still lay down a bunt. He led the majors with nine bunt base hits last year in less than 60 games. He played like 53 games last year, and he had, or 48 games, something like that, and he had nine bunt hits. So when you have that ability, you're not going to have prolonged slumps because you can still get on base at some point. And then if they start coming in to respect the bunt, slap it the other way, and you have yourself a base hit. Right. Last year he had the bunt, but now you've got to develop both these. You've got to get that swing into. You've got to actually be, you know, become a singles double hitter outside of the bunt. And then if you put all that together, you've got a really valuable player. I mean, you've got a guy who can run down anything, can steal bases like anyone. He's amazing at that. You've you've got a player there. You know, he's not going to be your five tools superstar talent, but he's a leadoff hitter, a guy who gets on base quite a lot, and a guy who can steal bases for you and score runs. And I think that's what's important for the Orioles and having Cedric Mullins. He, he's he's turning himself into a more valuable player. Well, the on base percentage has got to go up. It has it, to go it, up it, for it's, sure. It's, it's got to go up. It's around three ten for his career. I think it was at three three fifteen last year, despite the two seventy one average. Um, but he has the speed. I, I I don't look at him as a leadoff hitter. I look at him as more a nine hitter who can flip Fair the enough, line, yep. flip the lineup over. Uh, Austin Hayes has more of that approach to be the leadoff hitter, I think, has more of the on-base capabilities. Um, but that's assuming that they're both playing at, at the same time, uh, one in left and one in center field. But, you know, I used to look at Cedric Mullins, especially after what happened, getting demoted twice yeah. in 2019. I look at him now, and instead of seeing uh, his ceiling's a fourth outfitter, it's like, this is a guy who's a really good fourth outfielder who could make a, a, a statement that he can play every day, and I think that that's better than the Orioles could have hoped. At, you know, after what happened two seasons ago, uh, DJ Stewart has two home runs. He tweaked that hamstring uh, trying to beat out a, a ground ball uh, last weekend. They're, they're slow playing him a little bit because it's spring, but uh, he's going to need to get onto the field. Uh, this week, right. I, I would imagine, if he has any shot of making this opening day roster. Um, Yasniel Diaz, I think we can both agree he's not making the, the opening day roster. He, right. He's going to AAA. And look, when he gets the when he gets the bat in the ball, he hits it hard and he can hit it a long way. Fortunately, he unfortunately, I'm saying, it, he hasn't been getting the bat in the ball. A not lot. making it seems like, any contact. It, yeah. it seems like every... 80-90% of his bats, of his bats, it seems like if it's not a hit, he's striking out. And, and the, I need more. He's, we need more. He, they he, need more. He's definitely pressing, and he's swinging out of his shoes. He's trying to absolutely crush the ball every single time instead of you know just sitting back a little bit and waiting for his pitch. I think that's maybe the problem. And the plate discipline's been pretty poor. Um, you know, you, you just can't go up there swinging. He's been chasing at a ton of sliders outside of the zone, uh, a ton of fastballs up. He's just been chasing. Everything. So maybe a little bit of plate discipline, um, you know, a little bit of a better approach will probably help you, Neil Diaz, get back to what he was doing, you know, in the minors in 2019. Eight, eight, you know, 800 plus OPS. That's pretty good. Now Ryan Mountcastle, speaking of an 800 plus OPS, which yeah. is what he did in his rookie year, and, you know, he came up. He hit 333 in 35 games. He led the team in on base percentage, which we did not see coming. It was the plate discipline was severely lacking his entire minor league career. He's hit at every level, but he also hasn't walked uh, at every level. But then he comes up and shows a great amount of discipline plate discipline. Well, this spring it seems like he's reverted. He's batting just 105 with a 105 on base percentage. He's 2 for 19. No walks. Are you concerned? 
I'm not really concerned. It, it's still spring, and I, I know you know for some other players, I probably say I'm concerned. But the reason is is because Ryan Mountcastle is a professional hitter. He's hit everywhere. He's he's gone. He's kind of like Trey Mancini in my eyes, where he is that professional hitter. He knows how to hit the ball. He really he's not just a guy who goes up there and guesses. He really has informed at bats, and he knows how to hit the ball. He knows what the pitchers are going to give him. And yeah, the plate discipline. I'd like to see him walk. I, I think if he was two for nineteen, had five walks, then I'd be much more um, you know happy with that. But I would definitely like to see him bring up the walks because he's got to get on base, especially if he's going to be a one, two, three, four guy in this lineup. He's got to, he's got to get on base. Mountcastle, one hundred percent, to get on base. Yeah, like you said, this is a guy who you expect could hit thirty home runs with thirty doubles sure. at yeah. the big league level. Uh, getting on base needs to be a big part of your game. That's why I always had a big gripe with the Orioles signing Mark Trumbo to that three-year deal after it because yeah. Trumbo had 48, 47 home runs that year, but his on base percentage was three eighteen, and and also one of the worst defenders you'll ever find. Yeah, yeah, on any on any field. Story for a different day. Now sure. another guy who's showing great plate discipline, Anthony Santander. He's just two for ten this spring, but he has seven walks. And Brandon Hyde. Um, came to him this offseason and said, look, we need you to work on your plate discipline. You, we, we need you to get on base more and not chase pitches because when you get your pitch, you're going to hit it a long way. And um, Stan earlier today said that he was nervous about Santander because of his lack of on-base capabilities. But I look at Anthony Santander, I see a very intelligent person, a very hard worker. This is a guy who yeah. taught himself English. He taught himself English and now yep. is pretty much fluent in the language. And English is the hardest language to learn uh, in the world. It just is. Um, so I, I see a very intelligent player who works hard. Who, if you say, "Hey, we need you to do this," he's going to do it. I, I just I think that he knows that he can take his game to another level. And getting on base is going to help him do that. Being more selective at the plate, I'm really, really happy to see the seven walks. The 200 batting average, whatever. It's, it, he's had 10 at-bats that have ended with, that with without a walk, and he's got two hits. Those numbers are going to go up. I'm not too worried about it. Really happy to see the plate discipline. Yeah, and most of the TV games the Orioles have, you know, had with with whoever's broadcasting. The Pirates have broadcasted quite a few. Anthony Santander has not played many of those, so I haven't had the chance to really see whether he's hitting the ball hard. But he probably is. He's probably making a lot of hard outs. Ryan Malcastle, I should have mentioned, he he has made quite a few hard outs. He's hitting a lot of double plays where the, his exit velocity is over 100. So you'll take that. I mean, all you know, all you really are trying to do right now is just hit the ball hard because they'll end up being they'll end up being hits at some point. Uh, Th- throughout the season, those those balls are going to turn to the bases. Right, you're absolutely exactly. Right. They're not going to be outs every time. If you're hitting the ball over 100 miles an hour, it's going to find a hole. It's going to find a hole, and that's you know hopefully Anthony Santander is doing that, but we can't really tell. But I, I'm pretty sure he will be. Now, and we got to do this quickly because we got to get Melanie's interviews about a half an hour, yep. so we got to get to that. Um, Orioles new double play tandem: Freddie Galvis and Yomer Sanchez. They're batting 333 and 294. Trey Mancini's hitting 294. So it's nice to see those guys. Um, kind of get that opportunity and and run with it. Uh, Rio Ruiz, 083 in four games. He's one for 12 this year. He hasn't played in about a week because of an undisclosed illness. But nobody else is really pushing him. You know, Ryland Bannon are his likely replacements. Bannon's batting 111. Um, Pat Valeka is batting 211. For me, like, 
who's going to play third base? There's been rumors about Michael Franco, but you're thinking that he's probably a favorite to go to go to the Mets. Uh, what are the Orioles going to do about third base? Yeah, it was reported yesterday Michael Franco met with the Mets, so that's probably an inclination of a deal coming together soon. Um, you know what I would do? I would move Yolmer Sanchez to third base. Yolmer Sanchez is a Gold Glover at second, so he can probably handle third. I think Brandon Hyde said the other day Yolmer's can definitely handle third. So I, I'm he confident played a full season for the White Sox at third. Base he did. At one so point. so he can definitely handle it. He's not going to be a Gold Glover there probably, but you know he can handle it. And then I'd put Jemai Jones at second. See what happens. You know uh, Jemai Jones. You know he's he's ready. He, he's he's an older guy in the minors. He, he's definitely going to go to AAA if he doesn't make this roster. So maybe you throw Jemai Jones out there and just see what he has. He's not playing well in spring training either, but maybe you see what he has and move you over to third. Well, Jemai Jones, I think that he's a future, the future second baseman of this team, and I think that he's a future leadoff hitter. He's own base capabilities. He's got great speed. He's a hell of an athlete. Yeah. I think the Orioles are more inclined, even if Rio Ruiz doesn't get it going this spring, I think they're more inclined to still move Jemai Jones down to Norfolk, let him play second base every day with a potential to call him up sometime this year. Yeah, and another option you have is Ramon Urias. I mean, you, he, is, he has hit the ball very well. Um, you know, he, he's batting over 300 in spring training so far. He's been very impactful for the Orioles, so maybe you could try him at second or third base. He can play all around the infield. He's not a guy who, you know, he's kind of blocked by Pat Vileka at the utility position, so you never know. He might be able to get a shot at second or third base for sure well yeah the, the thing about Urias is uh, his defense has not been great he, it isn't he, good he, at all. he, he yeah. made a ton of errors in 10 games with the Orioles last year he's made a, made a yeah. few errors this spring so it's it's just one of those things where you know the, the Orioles are getting better they have depth in places that they didn't have depth before um however third base is still a huge question mark yeah. and if you if you move Sanchez over to third base then you have a whole second you're robbing Peter to pay Paul yeah and don't forget that you know the cut season is coming up DFA season is coming up there are going to be a lot of guys DFA right before the season usually on like March 28th March 29th there's going to be guys DFA that's how the Orioles got Pedro Severino exactly. years ago so they could pick up a, th- a third baseman or a second baseman uh you know through waivers and, and that would be something they'll probably look to do yeah and, and who knows who's going to be out there like you said Pedro Severino, who threw 30 games last year, would have been probably been the starting uh, catcher on yep. the All-Star team if they did that in a 60-game season. We really need to get Melanie's interview in here. Uh, before that, Zach, why don't you pay us the bills for us? All right, make the most out of every day in a Toyota RAV4 available in hybrid or gas-only models. A RAV4 can get you where you want to go in style. Check out buyatoyota.com for deals on new RAV4s from your local Toyota dealer today. The latest edition of PressBox is available now. On the cover, a lengthy Q&A with Orioles manager Brandon Hyde as he candidly discussed the impact the pandemic has had on the team's rebuilding effort. Chris Davis, Adley Rutschman, and much more. Inside, find our special college lacrosse feature introducing you to the men's and women's players at all of the area's schools. PressBox is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores. And you can always find the entire edition, as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. And just remember that while vaccines are here and there's reasons to be encouraged, COVID-19 is still a very real threat. Masks aren't going anywhere anytime soon. So let's wear masks to celebrate our hometown and the teams and athletes we love. PressBox is offering three different types of home team masks, including a purple and orange Maryland flag pattern 20-inch neck gaiter, plus a Celebrate 8 purple neck gaiter honoring the MVP quarterback, and an over-the-ear two-ply Maryland flag mask featuring a faded version of the iconic state flag. These are decorative masks. They are not CDC approved, but they are perfect 
for hanging out and watching these watching games uh, this fall and spring and summer while supporting your teams and being respectful of those around you. Get your masks right now at uh, pressboxonline.com slash masks. That's pressboxonline.com slash masks to get yours now. We have a pre-recorded interview with Melanie Newman, who is always just fantastic to talk to. She is such a baseball lifer. She loves it, and I love people that are like that. I want to give you all fair warning. At the beginning of the interview, when we get her on the line, there's a little bit of a feedback. I'm going to try to control the volume on that, but bear with it. It's about two, three seconds, and then it's a really great interview. We have right now Melanie Newman. All right, and joining us now in the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio, we have from the Orioles Radio Network and from Masson, Orioles broadcaster Melanie Newman. Melanie, how are you today? Hey, doing well. Just uh, getting ready for the season. Well, we're glad to have you on the program. I'm glad we could work it out having to pre-record with you because you were busy tomorrow. But thank you so much for joining us today. Melanie, how has this season, your preparation for now your second season with the Orioles, differed from last year? Um, Well, I mean, it's a huge start when you – are with the same team going into that last year I was prepping for a minor league season with a completely different organization when I found out that I would be joining the Orioles um, so trying to make that jump and, and learn a completely new team where they were in the landscape of baseball who their players even were um, and then of course having everything get shut down <laughs> just to throw an extra wrench into the mix um, it was such a unique challenge and situation to deal with so Having, you know, I don't want to call it a season, but having 60 games with the team at this point and now being several weeks into spring training, it's a much more comfortable situation for sure. Um, Just ready, honestly, to to be back into a stadium and have fans in the stands and uh, getting to see other ballparks, getting to actually talk to the players, not through a Zoom. Um, those are all, all pretty big things to look forward to. Well, yeah, certainly. And you were you were preparing to make your move to Baltimore last year, and then a wrench got thrown in everybody's spokes because of COVID. Uh, <laughs> do you sort of feel like you know the ropes now, or is this kind of old hat for you? Is it something that is always the same no matter what level you're at? It really um, – it's never the same. And even going from one minor league team to another, I think that was the, one of the best things that was ever implied upon me was wherever you go, be the rookie and, and be willing to have a, more of a learning stance on things instead of just breezing in like you know exactly what's going on um, because everybody's going to want something a little different. You know, it's, they did hire you for who you are, but they still run differently than, you know, the previous stop before you, and that's not sports. That's, uh, that seems to be business in general. Um, so with that, just moving into it and, and trying to get a hold of things it was different last year than it will be this year. And so we still really don't know, you know, what we'll be able to do this year. Some of the digital content we created last year, we certainly want to bring back, but um, it'll be a matter of, can we possibly elevate this and make some of these in-person pieces instead of, you know, remote zoom pieces that we're bringing into fans homes and just giving them a better taste of who the team is. And and so that they can further connect to these players and really get a taste of what the future ball club is going to be like, um, I, I'm, I'm still in much of a learning situation right now. The play-by-play is the same. Um, that's the one thing that stays consistent is you have to stay on top of your craft, and that means always working to be better at it. But everything else around it, um, and, and even what the fans want to see from us, that's always going to change. Well, certainly there's going to be a lot of changes this year. There's already been a lot of changes at Masson. Now, last year, 
you kind of did it all. You did pregame shows, postgame shows, play-by-play, television, radio. Oh, you did everything. Uh, this year, there's no postgame shows. There's no pregame shows. Unless you're calling the game, you do the first 15 minutes if you're on television. Uh, Melanie, have you gotten your Orioles schedule this, this year? Are you doing any splits between TV and between radio? Are you going to be doing anything on the pregame and postgame coverage? What does the 2021 season look like for Melanie Newman? Yeah, so they're still working to finalize the schedule, and, and I can't even imagine what Chris Glass and the rest of the crew are going through because I'm sure some of this is, you know, at what point, if and when, are we going to change this to letting broadcasters travel again, or will that just be completely put off until next year? Um, I, I do know a, a general ballpark of the situation out of the 162 games right now. It'll be about 90 on radio and then mixing in the rest on television, and so what that means is, uh, as a sideline reporter, I will have a, a partake in that pre- and post-game format that you had just discussed, um, which is normal because even last year when I had a sideline role and they had a full pre- and post-game show, they still had a couple segments where they would bring me in um, to just mix things up a little bit and get fans ready for the game and, of course, breaking everything down afterwards. So still doing a little bit of everything. Um, it just looks a little different this year, but I think it'll be fun. It'll be a little more fast paced and, and just something different to bring to fans. And, um, you know, we're going to be keeping it tight with the information that they want and the insight that they really can't get anywhere else. Well, and so we've been hearing now at, at the beginning of spring training, it was, we're going to do 12 games on the radio, no television games. Then we heard last week that they're probably going to be doing four games um, at the at the end of spring training that are going to be televised on Masson. And now that's up in the air too. Is there going to be televised or, or excuse me, are there going to be televised spring training games uh, before we start the regular season this year? Uh, you know, when I find out, <laughs> I will let you know. I've seen that as well um, and speculation that's been around it. And I think, too, just just to impress really to fans that this this hasn't been a situation of of selfishness and just not wanting to send a crew down there. It it really comes down to keeping everybody safe, um, making sure that COVID restrictions are able to be enforced. And that does mean keeping as few people in the ballpark, especially in close quarters, as possible. And you look at a TV truck. And you have so many people on top of each other because that's what it takes to to get your graphics, to have the producers and directors and everybody else. Um, So it's a risk that they were already taking all throughout last season to make sure that games were brought to fans. And I know that's a big thing that they're still trying to factor in, that if it is safe enough to do spring games, then, you know, they would they would move forward in that direction. Um, but for now, I, I have a couple radio games at the end of spring training. I'll be down there for about a week. And uh, I'll be looking forward to, to that in itself. Because getting back to baseball in front of my face, that's just, I almost don't even care what format I'm, I'm helping give it to fans. It's just being there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think that we're all, we all work in baseball. We're all excited and looking forward to baseball and seeing what kind of changes there's going to be throughout this 2021 season. And I actually learned of the minor league changes this year because of your Twitter account. And I have some of these, uh. rule, I, I have some of these rule changes in front of me. They're going to a triple a, they're going to be doing larger bases at double a, they're kind of going to be eliminating the shift a little bit. And at high a, they're going to, kind of be eliminating the step off or what you have to step off of the mound before you can throw to a base, which I don't like because I think that that 
that takes away from the trickery of a pickoff attempt. Uh, if, if they see your foot come off the, off the rubber, they can get back so easily. Some of these rules seem like a good idea, Melanie. Some of these rules just seem like we're just doing it just to do it, to appease the masses. Uh, what is your take on the new minor league rules? How do you feel about them? Are they necessary or there's a little much? I haven't seen a ton of positive reaction from fans, and um, it, it does bring a, a bit of concern when you see the disconnect and, and that fans – the initial perception was that the younger demographic of baseball fans wants something different with, with the game than the older generation of baseball fans. And now what we're seeing is, yes, some of the changes that have been ushered in since that turn – have been good. You know, they've been things that people have come around to, but now it's almost that, that overstep boundary. And you're seeing fans in the thousands who are just saying, you know, just, just stop changing the game. Um, just, just leave the game as it is. We love the game as it is. There's a reason it's been the pastime for hundreds of years. There's a reason that some small towns have had a team for, for well over a century mark. Um, and, and I think there's something to that. I, I always considered myself a little bit of a baseball purist. So I, I try not to be, you know, just the, the crotchety get off my porch person about it. But um, you, you do have to wonder at what point you you just leave the game alone. And I mean, you see it in football, too, that they'll have a couple changes here and there. They're usually geared towards safety, if anything. And, and that's an obvious reason. But um, they're, they're never this many in, in a row and right. to be so up and down throughout the system. But the thing, too, that you have to keep in mind is, Usually if there's any change they want to experiment with, they do that at the Arizona Fall League. It's a perfect, quiet environment. It doesn't impact a ton of people, and it is a higher-performing guys, so they can adapt to that change. And if anything, it's a two-month change. It's not anything that's going to mess up their rhythm when they get back to a normal setting in spring training. Um, and there was no Fall League this year. So I, I don't know if there was an effort in that it, it became this matter of timing and that this, this had to be experimented this year and, and they needed to see it and not wait until hypothetically this fall when Arizona Folly can open back up again. But, um, yeah, it's it's just such a weird situation. But I, I completely agree with the step-off rule. It's it's so obvious. Um, right. It's, it's almost like choosing, like, I'm not going to be in a deer stand if, if I go hunting in the fall. Like, I'm just going to be on the ground, and I'm going to wear all bright orange and, and make a lot of noise. Like, that's you're, you're just sitting out there in the open, like, this this is what I'm going to do. I mean, he might as well look at the guy on base and say, I'm going to throw over there in a minute if you want to get back. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I, I'll tell you. Um... I think that I, I don't like that role. I also don't like that they're going that that some of these minor league affiliates are going to uh, limit the amount of times you can throw over the first base. Now I know we we've all seen games where a pitcher throws over the first base twelve times when they're facing a given mm-hmm. batter, and that's that's a little much. That that that's bordering on the absurd. But limiting somebody to two attempts and on a third attempt if you don't pick them off it's a balk i just think that that's a terrible rule it takes away from the competitive nature of the game now melanie you said that you you don't want to be too get off my porch i'm going to play clint eastwood in gran torino because i'm (laughs) i'm enough of a curmudgeon for both of us here i I think baseball has been the same for 150 years and that's that's one of the beautiful things about the game and we don't need all of these big changes some of them are important i think that the 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 uh, shift is single-handedly responsible for the downfall of Chris Davis's career. And I'm all for forcing two players on either side of the bag. I'm all for that. But some of these other ones I am, I'm not for, and that's obvious. Now, speaking of Chris Davis, he got injured on his second 
at bat of spring training. They said it was day-to-day. That was two weeks ago. We haven't seen him since. What are your takeaways from that? Are they slow playing Chris Davis because of the contract, or is it really a significant injury? And then what are your other takeaways from spring training as a whole three to four weeks in? Yeah, I mean, everything that we've been hearing about this, and Mike Elias even spoke on it the other day, um, is just how hard it is to really pin down a back issue, especially when you consider the level of activity um, that somebody like that would be going through with their back muscles. Because if you haven't fully healed it, and and especially if you're considering something that has to do with wrapping around your spine, um, one wrong move, and you make it 10 times worse than it had been before that, even if you weren't in pain at that moment. And, uh, you know, it, it, it just, it's a not good situation at all. And and you got to feel for him. He was so excited last year. You know, he had worked all the stuff on the off season. He felt like a totally different person and um, then dealt with injury, then dealt with the shutdown, then dealt with injury again. And it's the same thing here. It's just such an aggressive false start almost to get really two, two appearances in um, and then be out. So I, I don't think it's a contract issue at all. Um, it really does come down to Davis, just just a bad luck of the draw. I, yeah. I mean, you see it every now and then, but just it doesn't almost feel like you see it so repeatedly as we've been seeing it with Chris Davis over the last two, three seasons here. Um, and, and I will say on the flip side, we are really lucky that this is all cropping up as Trey Mancini is back and healthy, and he's this guy who we have the option of playing him at first base because um, it would be a much different situation without him. Obviously, there's guys that can rotate over there like Pat Vileka, but um, it's just very different to have a dedicated first baseman. And, of course, that had already been put in place before Chris injured himself. So excited for Trey, if anything, to see him get more reps and um, to, to kind of be that consistent guy because what we're hearing right now is just very slim odds that Chris Davis is ready for opening day at this point. Um, But that was kind of something we had all seen as far as he would have to be battling um, to really be in that lineup at all. And and within that lineup, to what you were asking, um, Cedric Mullins is so fun right now. He is is. just, he's, he's finding the location. He's being that gritty guy. He almost seems like his head is a little more clear to focus um, now that he's not switch hitting anymore. And, and I'm sure that that was not an easy decision for him to go lefty only, but he also said, just look at the stats, look at, look at the right versus the left. And it wasn't a hard move for him to make. Um, his defense seems to be off the charts because again, he's got the speed. He's got the legs that are going to get him under any ball that comes to the outfield. And you start to think about Mullins and, and Hayes and Mountcastle, that outfield is really exciting. Um, and with that, Jemai Jones, who's been the, the outfielder, second baseman kind of flip between for us. Um, he's been really fun just to, to have around the clubhouse. He's always got this huge smile on his face, um, gives really thorough, thoughtful answers to everything that reporters ask him. It can be a hard question about his play or it can be something serious. And you can just tell how transparent he's being. And I think fans are going to absolutely love once they finally get to have a little exposure to him because he's just, he's a ray of light that fits in with this organization so seamlessly. Um, I mean, you could go around the rest of it, the the intrigue of the starting rotation with these veterans that they've brought in with Harvey and Hernandez. But um, that's, that's something that you you're intrigued to watch, but with a little reserve, especially when you see Felix and he's sitting mid eighties and, 
um, you start to think, okay, well, how, how is this going to get by people? Because, yes, he has the moment the first time through the order where he's, he's going to get guys to miss because they aren't seeing 80 anymore. Everybody's seeing high 90s, hundreds. Um, but then you start to think, okay, second time through the rotation, how is that going to play out? You know, second, third time he's playing the same team and they've got the book on him. Um, what's that situation like? So I think you stack him, especially with the high throwers when it comes to um, Hunter Harvey and Dylan Tate, especially. But it, it's going to be an interesting puzzle piece this year to put together. Hey, Melanie, it's Zach Goodman. And Mike Elias talked pretty long time, yet, uh, a couple days ago, about how Chris Davis wasn't able to make it back because of that injury, and he didn't think he'd be ready for opening day. And another guy who hasn't been playing a lot because he's been sick is what Mike Elias said is Rio Ruiz. He hasn't played in at least a week now. There's been a lot of other guys. The Orioles have moved around to third base. There's been Bannon. There's been McCoy. Uh, there's been Valleca. What is the, the, the status on Rio Ruiz? Is he still penciled in as the Orioles' uh, everyday first baseman on opening day, or are the Orioles going to look to sign someone because they don't even think he's going to be ready? So, uh, and I think you've heard, too, that the Orioles have been in the mix for Michael Franco. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I'm sure we'll see that come out here soon. But, of course, you look at the Orioles stacked up against the Braves and the Mets, who are reportedly the other two suitors. And, and you do wonder how that plays out. But I think that's also, it's not just a money factor. It's you look at the talent that those two already have at third base as well. Um, I, I think when it comes to Rio, he, he is the third baseman. I, I don't think he's this, you know, perennial lock of a guy who's going to retire an all-star with the Orioles at third base. But um, he had the consistent season last year to do so. He was a little sluggish to start off this year. And, I mean, look, spring training's a different beast. So, him being a little under the weather, that definitely happens. I got the worst allergy attacks my first couple weeks in Florida every single year for spring training, and it felt like the flu. Um, so, you know, it's, it's again, it's kind of like Chris Davis. It's an unfortunate situation that he would get sick and get taken out, but he's supposed to be back in and going at things again on Monday. He did start hitting again, um, so that's a positive sign as well. And who knows, maybe this down period for him has kind of let him reset um, from the way that he got to start spring training and uh, he can come in a little more ready to go because you just look at some of the other games and I know that for some of these guys they don't play third base very often and it is it is hard to, to switch over especially to that role um, and there's plays that you watch and, and you think to yourself okay well Rio would have had that um, he made certainly some spectacular defensive moves last year that you got to see just how athletic he was and, and he flashed that speed and the reason why he was a two-way athlete that was so heavily recruited. Um, so curious to see how, how he does come back within this coming week and, and that he reacts a little more positively um, now that he's fully healthy. Well, the, the thing about Rio Ruiz is he's kind of almost been handed this third base job simply because of a lack of depth at the position throughout the organization. And I feel like a player, especially a player who hasn't had the, that much success at a big league level, kind of needs that fire of being pushed by somebody else. And right now, Rio hasn't really experienced that to this point in his, in his career. Do you think that, the, that a potential signing of Michael Franco gives him that push? Or is Michael Franco brought in to be the everyday third baseman and then possibly be a trade chip in July? Um, I would certainly argue that if they were to sign Michael Franco, that the trade chip piece would be very reasonable because that's been the name of the game across Major League Baseball for the last couple of seasons. Is, um, especially if you're in a role like the Orioles, you want the trade value. This isn't a guy that you're looking to hang your hat on and, and let him eventually become a free agent move. You're trying to 
maximize that value and then push it out while it's at its peak. It's almost like playing the stocks, except the players are your chips. Um, but with Rio, he may not have had as much of a push with the Orioles so far, but this is a guy I've, I've followed and I've known very closely since his time with the Atlanta Braves, and he has known that. He has known what it's like to have to fight to belong and to fight to get to the big leagues, to fight to be in AAA. Um, the first time I was around him, he was teammates with Acuna and Albies, and those were the only two guys anybody talked about. And Of course, they played different positions from Rio, but he still knew there was a block at third base ahead of him if he wanted to make the jump from Gwinnett. Um, and, and that does sit with an athlete. And I think that's something that even if they move on from that team, they're very aware of the competition that it took for them to get on with another team in the first place. Um, if my, if Michael Franco gets signed, it, it's only going to push him more. He's not the kind of athlete that's going to bow out and say, okay, well, you know, they signed him. I'm, I'm done. Clearly they want him over me. No, he's, he's going to be the guy who's taking the extra hacks, who's, you know, doing the extra drills out on the field. Um, but he, he very much knows what it means to, to have to push an organization to think that he belongs there. Yeah, Melanie, two, two guys that are really important for the Orioles in this rebuild and, and are really key pieces for them right now are Bruce Zimmerman and Keegan Aiken. And it, it looked like Keegan Aiken is kind of penciled into that number two, number three starter spot for the Orioles, but nothing is official, obviously. And Bruce Zimmerman has pitched very well in spring training, probably better than Aiken. And, and Brandon Hyde's talked about how Aiken really needs to work on his command a little bit. He's walked a lot of guys, even though he has had a lot of strikeouts as well. What do you think the battle is between those two? And do you think Bruce Zimmerman has a legit shot at the rotation? Oh man, Zimmerman has been fun to watch this spring. I, I still, it just, it floats, but it's got, he still has that edge to it. And I think every pitcher needs that. And I do think that's the difference right now between he and Aiken is it's almost a mental thing. Um, Zimmerman gets a little nasty on the mound. You, you get a little bit, I'm not saying, you know, he's the guy that stares everybody down, um, but there's a little trepidation there versus Aiken you really just don't see it as much. Like he, he is effective, um, but for lack of a better description, he's, he's like the blue-collar pitcher. You know, He gets up on the mound and he's going to do his job. And, and I think he needs to find a, a little bit of that fire um, to bring in, uh, in addition to working on locating his stuff. Obviously, you don't want to overkill it because we saw that with Means last year. He came in 100, and, uh, and the location suffered because of it. But... Um, I definitely think when you're looking at it, it still makes sense with Means and Kramer. I would probably put Aiken behind Kramer, but that fluctuates almost every other time that either of them make a start. And it's just so hard to pin down these young guys. Um, and, and especially, too, the biggest thing that we've been discussing kind of away from the field is how are all of these rookies going to respond to fans in the stands? Because as much as people think that it has no effect on the game – it, it absolutely does. And you talk about going on the road to Yankee Stadium where you pitched in front of a, a quiet, huge cathedral last year. Well, now you have some of the most vocal, blunt fans in baseball, um, and they will call it like they see it, and they are not going to like you if you're not in pinstripes. And that does, that does get to you at some point. Um, so that's going to be a battle for, for all of them, including Ryan Mountcastle. I mean, he's going to be in the outfield right underneath the, the fence of some of these people. Um, but for, for Zimmerman, I think it's, it's just such a key that he is being so open-minded to wherever Hyde wants to put him. And that's the name of the game with the Orioles this year is who, who is willing to go whenever and wherever I put them. 
um, whether that's a position player playing multiple roles, being able to flip around the field as well as serve as a DH, or it's a pitcher who's comfortable with being a starter, a stretch man, or maybe just the one-inning guy. Uh, Zimmerman has been such an open book to that, and I think that's the best thing, especially for a rookie, to just be a sponge and, and say, hey, it's not even the Bull Durham cliche of, you know, wherever the team needs me, I'm there. He's, he's putting forth the, the proof that, that he can do exactly that. I think Hyde will be a little careful with him initially. Um, he did get some starts last year, so that's all the more to his credit that he wasn't just a bullpen-only guy, and you'll see that with a lot of them that come up. But um, I, I think there's a chance that Zimmerman can bounce back and forth both out of the pen and in the rotation. Well, Melanie, the, the pitching, namely the starting rotation, has been the, the main topic of conversation since they arrived in Sarasota. We're now just about two weeks into the Grapefruit League schedule Pitching and defense have left much to be desired. The first week or so, you can kind of uh, attribute that to it being early on and, and pl- pitchers and players working on things. But at what point do we start to get concerned that they're not that the starters aren't pitching well, that the defenders aren't defending well, and, and they kind of need to kind of start getting it going? Um, I really think that's going to be the first week of the actual regular season, which is not what people are going to want to hear, but. Um, there, there is a different atmosphere when you have your team finalized, you have guys who are able to clear their minds. They're, they're not over pressuring themselves on will I, or won't I make the team? Um, you know, for the catchers, they're not trying to figure out who, who on earth is going to be their, their battery mate through their rotation. Um, and, and given the fact that it opens up with a pretty heavy series with Boston, the first two weeks, and, and those are pretty much the two teams in the AL East that are going to be going back and forth, um, that's going to be the telltale sign for me, honestly, at that point, because you're in a real game situation. Um, you've already got the, the lineup is settled. Your rotation is settled. And, and it, it really is a different atmosphere with how the guys perform as well. As much as we don't want to think it is, and we know that they're not walking out there and thinking spring training games are a joke. There's just, for whatever reason, every year, something that's so much more intangible about it. And, and sure, it's not going to be the black and white on paper record that fans want to see from a team. But I also continually to go back to the fact that it's a big benefit that Orioles fans are perfectly aware that they're in a rebuilding right now. And the fact that they can see the talent coming up behind everybody who's at the big league level right now and just how good that talent is going to be that Elias and this whole staff have done such a good job of making sure that they're in the minor leagues until they're perfectly developed, not rushing them, to fill a spot to get one win over the weekend against Toronto, but instead making sure that every single thing is, is done to a T and that they're not rattled and they step in perfectly when they get up here. Um, that's, that's when fans will really be able to lock in at that point. So, and that, I go back to that is it's not going to be the record they want, but with some of these odd pieces that you just don't see other teams doing right now, if anything, it's going to be entertaining. <laughs> Well, and with that point in mind, Melanie, what are your expectations for this season? The Orioles managed to stay in the playoff race um, until the last week of the 2020 season, albeit in a very shortened season. Do they have the ability to kind of stay in it throughout the entire year? Is this another probably 90 to 100 loss season for them? Yeah, I I definitely don't think – I mean, you just look at the NL East and the AL East this year, and certainly the NL East is the juggernaut of Major League Baseball right now. But even with that, I mean, the Blue Jays, the Yankees, and um, the Rays 
all have reasons that they're they're going to be pushing for the top of that as well. So I, I don't think they're going to be this team that people are going, oh, you know, they're they're half a game from the postseason or you know, they're they're looking at October and they've got the surprise rod on their heels. I'm not saying it's impossible. Um, we certainly saw what Miami did last year, but uh, I think they'll they'll be a steady mix pushing pushing around fourth place. I think they're going to string together some wins that are going to surprise some people and and just catch other teams off guard. We saw it last year where even after they had been in like a five six game slump, they they broke out a series of wins against some teams that really should should have had the upper hand. I, I mean, you're talking eighty percent win odds over the whole situation, and yet here were the Orioles playing spoiler to it. And I think they enjoy that role. They're a young enough group of guys to where, you know, they're honest about where they're at right now. They they know that they're not going to blow the doors off anybody, but they also appreciate the challenge of being told they can't blow the doors off of anybody. Um, and, and they go out there every single time and, and just really show fans, even in a loss, they're still pushing back to try to win it. I mean, it was even evident in the game yesterday or um, Thursday, that is, you know, they were down by a couple runs and, and the younger guys come in, you had Gunner at the plate and, and again, spring training, a game that everybody wants to count as meaningless, still, still getting hits up on the board in the ninth inning and, and still proving that, yeah, it's the pirates, but we can still do something. We're not just going to be lame ducks and take a loss. Um, so, it, again, we're not looking at the postseason, but I, I think it's going to be a little less painful just seeing exactly what comes up. Well, certainly, again, to see some of these young prospects get their feet wet at the big, at the big league level, maybe we get to see Adley Rutschman at the end of the year to add some excitement <laughs> to this season. That's a topic for another day. We'll give you a break because I'm sure you've had to talk about that a lot this year. Uh, Melanie, I saw a pinned tweet on your, um, on your Twitter account uh, just basically talking about how much you love baseball and you don't consider this going to work and you're always down for a doubleheader. And I feel like you and I are cut from the same mold when it comes to how much we love baseball. So it is always an extreme pleasure when I get to talk to you. And hopefully we get to do it again uh, later on this season. Likewise. It's, it's always just great. And you know right away when you see people who are of the same baseball kinship. It's, it's the greatest thing on earth. But uh, I'm sure we will have a lot to discuss this season. <laughs> Absolutely. And I look forward to it. Melanie, thank you so much for taking some time. And we'll talk to you later on this year. Absolutely. All right. Take care. C3 American Exteriors is the area's best and most trusted roof and siding specialists. C3 is also an insurance adjuster's worst nightmare and a homeowner's dream come true. With all of the bad weather, chances are you have some roof and siding damage. Call C3 American Exteriors now to get your roof and siding repairs for the cost of your deductible. Don't let the insurance industry get one over on you. C3 guarantees a 48-hour rapid response. Call 401 or go to c3america.com for a free analysis. Since masks are a part of our lives now and probably will be for a while, we might as well wear masks that celebrate our hometown and the teams and athletes we love. PressBox is offering three different types of masks, including a purple and orange Maryland flag pattern 20-inch neck gaiter, plus a Celebrate 8 purple neck gaiter honoring the MVP quarterback, and an over-the-ear two-ply Maryland flag mask featuring a 
updated version of the iconic state flag. These are decorative masks. They're not CDC approved, but they are perfect for hanging out and watching games this fall while supporting your favorite teams and being respectful of those around you. Get your masks right now at PressBoxOnline.com masks. That's PressBoxOnline.com masks to get yours now. Hey, Dad, can we try one of those hoagie things? <sighs> Sorry, son. We aren't hoagie people. What do you mean? Son, we're Royal Farms sub people, like my daddy was and his daddy before him, like you and me and all the folks we know. Gee, Dad, I never thought about it like that. So you're saying hoagie people are... Aliens, son. They're aliens. <laughs> Royal Farm subs are Baltimore's best. Real fresh, real fast. Royal Farms. For more than 100 years, Chesapeake Employers Insurance has been helping Maryland businesses keep their workers safe. With competitive pricing and an AM Best, A-minus financial strength rating, it's no surprise that Chesapeake Employers is Maryland's largest writer of workers' comp insurance. At the end of every workday, someone's waiting for your safe return. Connect with your agent or visit CEIWC.com. The latest edition of Press Box is available now. On the cover, a lengthy Q&A with Orioles manager Brandon Hyde as he candidly discussed the impact the pandemic has had on the team's rebuilding effort, Chris Davis, Adley Rutschman, and much more. Inside, find our special college lacrosse feature, introducing you to the men's and women's players at all of the area schools. Press Box is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores. And you can always find the entire edition, as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. Welcome back to the Batter Round, coming to you from the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio. Love that Glenn Clark intro music. Um, Orioles about to get started against the Blue Jays here in just, just under an hour. Wade LeBlanc. As uh, as Ben McDonald says, he's getting the getting the hill, getting the hill, getting the ball on the bump today uh, for the Orioles. We're going to see if he can follow suit from John Means, who went four innings of one run ball yesterday, uh, two hits, one walk, his first four strikeouts of the spring campaign. Really, the first Orioles start. Well, Dean Kramer pitched well, um, a few and, hard hits, and, but he pitched well. A yeah. few hard hits, a couple of balls that. Probably would have left the ballpark if not for the wind blowing in. Nelson Cruz hit a ball, I, I think it was 500 feet. It was at least, it was absolutely destroyed, but it went foul. So, yeah. you know, a it, lot of long foul balls this, this spring. Um, Dean Kramer, though, he got through three innings of yeah. shutout ball in his, in his, um, his last appearance, and John Means had a, had a nice start yesterday. You really want to start seeing these rotation pieces kind of round in the form here, Zach, uh, because it hasn't been good. It's got to be soon. Yeah. It's, it's got to be soon. The, the Orioles started to pitch to a 7-7-1 ERA through 12 games. Uh, Means, even after that four-inning display, is ERA 7-0-4. Dean Kramer's ERA is 5-7-9. Uh, Matt Harvey, 13-50. Uh, King Felix, 9-64. Uh, Mid-season form. I, I, <laughs> you know, the Orioles are there. I'm not concerned but i'm not not concerned i agree with if, that if, if that makes sense uh like i want to see these guys start you know limiting the hits and the runs and a better defense will help with that i'm confident in dean kramer and and john means that they're going to put up a good season and they're going to have a lot of good outings and but I, for the rest of the rotation i don't know what to expect and it, i want to see keegan Egan start throwing more strikes i would too yeah and not hittable strikes i want to see him work the outside and inside of the plate not just to throw a, you know a fastball and three one right down the middle and have it get smashed and, and that's not that's not the goal 
And the other thing is, you know, we watched Wade LeBlanc have a solid spring last year and then go out and pitch to an 804 ER. Now he yeah. had that that stress fracture in his elbow that he was pitching through the entire spring and the entire early part of the season for the Orioles. But um, I'm not big on Wade LeBlanc. I'm not big on Matt Harvey. I'm not even that big on, on Felix Hernandez. It's a nice story. Um, but that, that 84 to 86 mile an hour fastball. And, and you know, I, I, I took um, – I don't want to say it took offense, but I, I I took it a little personally when that when I was listening to that Orioles uh, Pirates game on the on the Pirates radio broadcast the other day when Felix made his second start and they said striking out you don't want to strike out against against King Felix these days if he throws nothing he throws if he throws it for a strike you should ever swing and miss at and that's very short sighted definitely full I mean the, the breaking stuff in that changeup the changeup is still a great changeup that he had back in 2011 2012 same thing with the slider it, it, it's excellent stuff outside of the fastball it's it's awful his fastball yeah. if he leaves it up it's going to get crushed and it's not even whether the fact that it's on the outside or inside of the plate if he puts it over the plate it's going to get hit Todd Frazier destroyed a fastball um you know there there have been a couple of fastballs that have gotten destroyed already by uh, off well, Felix so and then and, and that's the thing though it's, it's about pitchability anybody can strike right. somebody out if you know how to locate your pitches and it, it's funny because you know uh, Alexander Wells, he's a top prospect for the Orioles, and he's had success at every level. But his fastball tops out at 88. Right, he's a yeah. finesse guy all you know? the way. So, yeah. if, but if if he's why is he any different? Why is he any right. different than King Felix? If he, if his fastball is in the mid to upper 80s, like like Felix Hernandez, and why to, uh, why can he spot it and have success and Felix Hernandez can't? Yeah, Zach Lowther, another guy, doesn't throw hard, and you know he's had Lowther's a lot of success. Velocity's up. It's been up a little bit. It, but it, he, it's in the low 90s now. Generally in his career, he would he would top out 89, 90 around there, which is which is lower these days for a starting pitcher. So I feel like I saw somewhere like 93, 94. Well, that would definitely point, be an improvement this year. Yeah. That would, they said that, that he's honest. at a velo to his fastball. Now I can't be. You know, 100% sure about that, but I know I read that somewhere. So, uh, look, we guys, we guys, we got to get a, uh, we got to get out of here. We've run a little long today, as per usual. Um, but again, I'm not going to be here next week. Zach's taking over hosting duties for me. He's a little nervous, but I know he's going to, he's going to handle it'll, it with great aplomb. Um, we've got the, the best producer in the game, Kyle Ottenheimer, you know, uh, help me out. So that'll yeah. be good. Yeah, he'll be in here helping you out. It should be a good show. We're gonna he's gonna try and get Matt Kremnitzer on the show. We're definitely gonna have to yep. stay in at ten twenty. And I'll be joining uh to give him a little levity and a little bit of a break. Uh eleven thirty five when I get off my flight down to spring training in Sarasota. Guys, be safe, be socially distant, wear your masks, stay healthy. See ya.